can have like objective metrics of progress or you can have subjective metrics of progress. So you can change your experience of flow or your degree of anxiety by creating a more refined mental model of what success looks like. So in the play research, they find that if you succeed less than 30% of the time, you lose motivation. So you can imagine that a lot of people go to jiu-jitsu and they do not tap out their opponent 30% of the time. So Bren, it's nice to meet you actually. I don't believe that we've ever uh, spoken before. Yeah, you too. I've heard I've heard a lot of great things. So I'm here. Um, cool. I've been anticipating this conversation. I I really, you know, um, I enjoy the content you've been putting out on YouTube. You've been building quite a quite a little platform for yourself. Thank you. And what I think is cool is you've talked about this yourself. This the sense that the movement culture is kind of a a closed system. It's not open source, <laughs> and it needs to be more open source. Yeah. Yeah. And so what it's what's interesting to me about having a conversation with you is you're someone who I think still really has a lot of movement culture kind of paradigm. Like a lot of people who leave working with Edo are sort of reject the whole thing. It seems yeah. like you're still really attuned and kind of aligned with a lot of that conceptualization. Yeah. But you're wanting to open the, the conversation up in a broader way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's cool that you can see that. And I, I remember you you mentioned some of it uh in one of the comments. So yeah, we'll, we'll get into all that, which will be okay. great. But but yeah, it, totally. I so the thing is like I think yeah, I mentioned this publicly, like uh, you know, there's a lot of people that just completely disregard Ito, you know, but I I really think he is a genius, you know, he is brilliant. Of course, there's, there's like limits, right? He's not God. He's not omnipotent or, you know, all knowing. So there's definitely a lot of mistakes. And I think like, you know, he's the sort of guy, like he'll say anything with like so much conviction, you know, <laughs> like so much conviction that it's just like. Yeah. And not just with conviction, no. but very articulately and very charismatically. So it's easy. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. Like, yeah, I just I'll finish my little preamble here. Um, so yeah, so I've been excited to do that with you. What I've noticed, like I've consumed a lot of your content here, and I think it's really cool because I think we have this intersection where we both share uh, our deep interest in the kind of motor learning research that's out there yeah. and how that needs to get much more widely understood in communities of movement practice. So I think that's a really cool commonality, but I also noticed that there's there's some areas where we do have some good creative friction where you know, I think you're still in, in in some sense in the stuff that I'm critical about the movement culture. Please? So I think that's oh, going to be a, a yeah. really interesting um, conversation. I think I've got so many topics here. I'm sure we're not going to get to it all. Before we really dig in, I'd love to just have you uh, give a just a quick background. Um, you started kind of in athletics with weightlifting and then became influenced by Ido, went into the gymnastics, and now you're practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and movement culture. Is that kind of the, the basics of it? Pretty much. Yeah, I, I was, you're generously leaving out the part where I, I was very uncoordinated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> the, the playing lots of, what was it, Starcraft as a kid? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you played uh, lots of Starcraft. You were doing cellular, uh, biology basically basically uh cellular biology you started in high school chemistry yeah okay 
And and then now, have you completed your your master's in in uh, in uh, motor science or uh, motor learning? Um, there is no motor learning degree where where I'm studying. Unfortunately, okay. I was like I was pressing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. God, I would love to have done that. But um, I'm almost done with a master's just in kinesiology in general. Kinesiology. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. So that's kind of your background. You yeah. have outside the movement cult, and, and you're doing this stuff. So hopefully that's enough background. We can get into the meat of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I and I would also say I think I think I've I, at least I feel I I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things we can discuss today. But I certainly feel that I've been um, branching off from a lot of the movement culture, yeah. like ideas and the kind of dogmatism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say like I'm in movement culture anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, movement culture yeah. adjacent. Yeah. A, a movement culture adjacent, like whatever. Yeah, grab yourself as a movement teacher, correct? Definitely. Yeah. 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 And that's the kind of primary work you're doing aside from your, your, your role as a student. Yeah. Um, so I was, I'm running an article right now called, uh, basically an article about what does it mean to be a movement generalist? Ooh. And uh, I'm on my fourth attempt at it and it keeps getting yeah in various ways because I there's a lot of things I want to say and one thing that's interesting to me is is like looking back at the history of it mm. so I started training parkour in 2005 and then I started wow. doing uh becoming aware of CrossFit about six months in, into that yeah and I look back on this and I think that in the kind of broader sphere of physical culture Mm. There's a there's a movement towards functional fitness, towards kind of more athletic approaches to fitness, moving away yeah. from the isolation that's happening all through the 90s. And it's really catalyzed and gains mainstream traction with CrossFit. And if you go back to the original CrossFit documents, they talk about fitness as not being just how long you can run or your VO2 max, but as being the balance of athletic attributes you know, speed, power, um, strength, agility, balance, et cetera, right? The three metabolic systems, phosphagen, uh, glycolytic, and aerobic. And then they have this idea of the, the athlete who performs best across any number of potential movement tasks, right? So they call that the infinite hopper model. So the infinite hopper model is you imagine a, a hopper that puts out movement tasks. Yeah. performs the best at that. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting about CrossFit is in the early days, and Ido I know was into CrossFit in the early days as well. Right? Yeah, so both yeah. Kind of this community of uh, of influenced by CrossFit. In that early CrossFit, they were doing tumbling, right? They were doing press right. to handstands. They were doing, you know, front flips and back flips and splits. And they were saying, learn new sports all the time. Yeah. That's part of the original CrossFit model. And then it gets simplified and turns into work capacity across broad time and mobile means. <laughs> so what's interesting to me is I think that Edo can really be understood as like taking that CrossFit model and recognizing that the infant hopper aspect is actually the top, right? That the athletic attributes and the energy systems are actually subsidiary to the general ability to complete movement tasks. Yeah. Would you agree with that? 
Mostly. I, I, I wonder, one of the things I think about that, that's just been coming up more recently is there's so much focus on quality in the movement culture. Yeah. Uh, or let's say Edo's movement culture to make things a little more simple. Yeah. That when, when you're so focused on that quality, it limits how many things you can do. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, you know, say I show you a whole right? Like if you have to perfect that move and if you teach students so that they cannot move on or learn another move until they perfect that move, you really limit how much you show them. And, and to me that, that feels a little different than this infinite hopper model that you've described. You know, I think that's an error. So yeah, I think that's an error in programming rather than a, rather than a difference in conceptualization. I think I don't know. I think, I think it's, I think it has to do with the conceptualization of, of quality of like this. Necessity. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Quality, the necessity of quality to me doesn't change the fact that the, the overarching described goal is this general capacity for movement. Right, right, right. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Yeah. Within, I think there's feedback coming from that. So I think within, so that there's a general overarching thing, right? And I think that's the same. I think that's the way Udo would describe it. Or he never likes, you know, to agree with people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's sort of what he's thinking. But um, yeah, because it, it's not just, so, so the example that comes to mind is like dancers, right? So like dancers versus like a lot of, let's say movement students with, with the way they train dance, like there's so many moves over and over, new move, new move, new move, new move. You take a dance class, if you're a beginner, there's like, I don't know, 20 new moves. If you're advanced, there's like, you know, maybe you've seen a lot of them before, but maybe there's a hundred, 150 like plus, right? And each of those have a lot, you know, tons and tons of details within them. And so for me, I think about like it kind of being a fundamental difference. Like when I think about like the way you describe this infinite hopper model, maybe it's maybe it's just terminology and, and what you're saying is, is programming. I'm thinking of a little differently. But but to me, like when I think of this infinite hopper model, I think of like if we really work to just throw everything at people, right? Throw random, tons of random movement tasks at people from all these different disciplines. And we see like how well you can perform in these, in these different areas, in these different movements, in these different tasks. Um, like I think of like this, this dancer approach where they're exposed to so many new movements all the time with such a little fixation on the quality for any of them, they're trying to do them well, but there's not like this, there's not this need to perfect any move before you learn another one. Like it's just accepted that you're doing your best and it's, it's, <laughs> it's not even close to perfect and we're doing the next one already, right? Um, but with dancers, like what, what I think you find is the quality of the movements they perform, if you were to, you know, rapid fire, throw them these sort of hopper tasks is really, really high. It's actually, I would say higher than like uh, the way movement students are being taught right now, where they, they have to, they've got a set of moves that they can do really, really well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, 
Do you see that? Like what I'm trying to say? Like, no, I agree completely. I, again, I think yeah. it's, a, it's just orthogonal to the point that I'm making. Sure. I think that what you're describing is if the goal is this universal competence, you actually need yeah. to do more exploration and yeah. allow the process to be dirtier and yeah. get there by exactly. doing exactly perfect movements, then you're, exactly. you're kind of missing the point. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that'll be a useful thing to, to dive into more as we go forward, yeah. the motor learning cool. aspect here. But <clears throat> to go back to this idea of, I, w- I was thinking about the kind of evolution of this and how there's, I mean, all of this is kind of like presaged already in the past. Like if you go back to, um, you know, George Hebert, Margaret Stryker, yeah. Bernard McFadden, like movement, physical culture was very movement oriented mm-hmm. in the 19th century, in the 20, uh, early 20th yeah. century. And it became very isolated. And there's this kind of reclamation of functionality in the 90s. And then there was CrossFit. And then there was the idea of, well, wait, actually, we really want to be confident in movement. And that was happening like, you know, I think Julie Angel is actually the person who came up with the term uh, movement culture. At least that's what she tells me. <laughs> um, okay. But like Ido and myself and Simon Sacker and Josef Frusek and various other people, Kitty Bowman, we were all talking about movement. And then yeah. the star went really big and then he kind of was like no nobody else gets to talk about movement but there was a movement culture that was a little bit broader than right. people really remember right um, and and i you know so i was i was part of that but ito did kind of catalyze in me a movement from thinking about things as fitness first and to think about things as movement first right but when i read the original cross documents they made a huge impact on me yeah and one of the but there was this so what CrossFit comes up with then is the 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 optimal mover is the optimal the fittest person is a combination of a gymnast because gymnasts learn new sports faster than other people uh-huh. a weightlifter and a middle distance runner and that's going to be the best across all of these sort of sets of attributes that they're talking about and I, I was already doing parkour and I was like parkour is definitely a better base than than gymnastics yeah. Um, and where's martial arts in here, right? Yeah. And so I started thinking about this idea of relevance, right? If you have to do a CrossFit workout, you have to, you, whether you do, whether you're successful or not, you're gonna, you're, you're fine, right? But if you have to fight off a mugger or escape a burning building, right? It's pass fail, right? It right. It's more relevant. It's also more like relevant evolutionarily. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so that's so I was like that that idea of an archetype is interesting, but I think we can do better than that. Yeah. And Edo, I really see a similar kind of development of or with the movement culture. There's a similar sort of combination of things. It starts with Floreo from Capoeira, hand mm-hmm. balancing, and gymnastics strength. Those are really the core elements in the beginning, as far as I can tell. And then over time, mm-hmm. aspects of modern dance and contemporary dance. Russian martial arts, and then now recently, like internal Chinese martial arts have all sort of been brought into what movement culture is. But there was a, there is a very specific set of skills that are kind of derived from specific disciplines that have been what you see people who claim the term movement right. practicing. Right. There's not a lot, there's not a huge diversity in people who are talking about movement within that frame in the primary disciplines that they're pulling from. Yes. Um, and again, I like, I think the ideas are, there's some really good ideas there, but 
I think that there is there's a lack of relevance to the fundamental skills that the method is based off of. And so Ito's response to this seems to have been to say there's no hierarchy in movement. Yeah. Which I think is honestly, I think it's a little bit of bullshit because if there's no hierarchy in movement, mm. then you don't have a reason to 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 focus on the things that you do. And I've seen you talk about this as well. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. I'm I'm getting rid of the rhizomatic thing. Yeah. I, I prioritize dance and grappling. Yeah. So this is, I think, a really interesting intersection between the way that I've been thinking and the way that you've been thinking. Yeah. There has to be hierarchy, I think, within movement. It's not enough to train for everything. You actually have to train for the most relevant things. Yeah. So that was kind of just where I wanted to start the conversation. It was like, yeah, here's the history of it. Now we kind of have two main questions that have to do with like, how do you do movement well? Which is, what are actually the things that you prioritize? And two, how do we go about learning it? And I think the, the aspect of how we go about learning it is the area where we have a lot of commonality already. Right. The aspect of what the prioritization is, is kind of the interesting. Yeah. The interesting potential, like, yeah. Difference of viewpoint. What, so how would you prioritize? These I, mean, I, put it, I don't know. I put it out there, but I would say that like uh, parkour, basically the, the way that I look at it, there's locomotion, there's manipulation of objects. All right. How would, how would you define just even, how would you yeah. define locomotion? A locomotion is moving our body through space, right? Okay. So then manipulation is moving the objects around us. So you can think about the environment as elements that are fixed and elements okay. that are that are mobile. So okay. when we are moving ourselves through the fixed environment, that's locomotion. When we're moving objects that when we're relatively fixed and we're moving the objects around us, that's manipulation. And then interaction is when we're moving with something else that has the capacity to move. And that can be either cooperative or combative. Okay. So those are the four layers. And then my critique of most of what's happening, not just with Ida's movement culture, but like GMB or animal flow or any of these things is I, I like these guys. Like, you know, I think there's great stuff there. Yeah. Human locomotion didn't evolve to be done on flat ground, right? It evolved right. to be able to solve mm -hmm. environments. And that's mm -hmm. why I think that parkour fundamentally is the base. And the locomotive patterns mm -hmm. that you see in movement culture are derived from floreo um and and modern dance and i think that's actually it's kind of i think it's a path dependent thing that happened it's actually misleading <laughs> sorry i'm just throwing no no you want to expand on that yeah so so basically ito starts with capoeira right and then he gets interested, okay. interested in strength and conditioning okay so then he starts thinking about movement. What movement does he focus on? He focuses on patterns of movement that are mostly derived originally from capoeira. Okay. He's, he, he's adopting a wider perspective on movement, but that wider perspective on movement is derived from his experience with capoeira that he's already really good at. Right. So I, I trained with Ido in 2012, right? And I was doing parkour. Mm-hmm. And he saw me like jumping between bars at height. I was like, I would never try this. <laughs> I would never do this. Right. I was like, well, why not? Right. Yeah. Where's the where's the generalist mover here? Mm. What is what is it that 
that we're really trying to get at with movement. Hmm. And then he went and trained with the Parkour Generations guys with Stefan Vigro, who I know. And he came back and he just brought the rail back. <laughs> that was that was it. Yeah. Right? Right. So so I think that movement culture in some sense fell into a trap in the beginning because it was derived from a very abstracted part of a discipline. For me, capoeira is actually more complete as a movement culture because it involves the interaction. Yeah. Which is much more alive. Yeah. Yeah, so so this is something I've, I've talked about with uh, my friend Grant, um, that it's like this extraction process that kind of goes on, like it is an extraction process, right? Like it's like, it's in, in a way, it's it's the same thing we do with food, right? We're like, oh, like what's the most valuable part of this corn? Yeah. It's fructose. <laughs> Right. So let's just like get a whole ton of it. Let's like do this whole process. Let's get all the fructose and we'll, we'll put it in everything. And, <laughs> and we've, we've got our thing. And, and the problem with that is many fold, but you've, in a, in a way you've bastardized the original thing by taking out this, this individual part of it. Um, and, and I think these examples you're bringing are, are, are great examples of that as, as many others, right? Like Capoeira in particular, when you pull out the element of the partner, Capoeira is entirely like it's, it's in a way, it's more about the relationship with the partner than the actual moves that you do. Yeah. Right. And so, and, and the relationship with the partner and also like the wider social interaction, Mm -hmm. right. And the history too, like capoeira is the music, capoeira is the folklore, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the culture, exactly. And so when you when you take that out and you just focus on the moves, and moves are nice, but there's there's a lot you lose when you extract the isolated section. Um, the the rail work with parkour, another great example, um, and same thing with uh, with like boxing where like the the extraction has been this like focus on like the touch game of like you're you're doing footwork and you're trying to touch the other person's shoulders but there's something you lose when you never get punched in the face right like when you when you yeah. <laughs> I, i'm gonna be i guess very critical here but i think you lose the, the most important things of almost all those disciplines when you do it like this so it's interesting because i so i well, I guess I'll go in a couple of different ways. One, that idea of the extraction thing is really yeah. interesting because that's an idea that that I've been thinking about for a long time as well. Mm. So I was sitting down with a friend of mine, Stefan Guillenet, who's a uh, neurobiology PhD from the University of Washington. He studies uh, obesity. Nice. And what he told me was that what the food industry has done was they've divorced flavor from nutrition. Right. They create hyper- products that stimulate us to eat mm -hmm. healthy for us because the sweetness is no longer necessarily attached to the fiber and water that's in fruit right and it had this chain of insights for me that um like pornography is sexuality extracted from relationships mm -hmm. video games are thrill extracted mm -hmm. from physicality like you can right. social media is is social approval extracted from actual right? Yep. So over and over again, it, it looks like a hack on capitalism 
is right. how you create a hyper-stimulating <laughs> version of something that, uh, that then we can... I, I don't think that like junk food is designed to be unhealthy. Mm. <clears throat> I think that that's, right. it's, it's not that what junk food is designed to be is what is the thing that will, that will, that will, um, kind of, uh, stimulate your pleasure centers. Right. The most that is the cheapest to deliver. Exactly. So to be cheap, it needs to be able to be made from really, you know, cheap things and be very shelf stable. Right? right. You buy right. an apple, it rots a week later. You buy a Twinkie, you can eat it 30 <laughs> minutes later. Right? Right. That, like you think about like if you're a company trying to make money, how much like decreasing those costs, right? Like how much spoilage are you worried about if you're a candy company? Right. Right. So that's kind of I'm, I'm getting a little bit off tangent here. Oh, right? no. Really cool that you identify the same thing but i had i hadn't exactly contextualized what i see happening in movement culture the same way the way that i've been thinking about it is that there's a there's an incentive problem in movement culture because so you know, movement culture basically spreads via social media okay uh, right so social media is about well let's say let's say there's there's two parts of it right there's the there's the social media side, and then there's also like there's also the in-person side that and and there the is. There is. I think you know I I try to make a distinction between like Ido and his core students and like movement culture as it plays out on everyone who's trying to play the game on social media. Right. 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 I, I, like I have I have critiques of Ido and his core students, but I have a, a bigger critique, or I'm much more critical of that that social. Right. Media. Right. I think that what you're pointing out has to do with this social aspect, which is when you are a generalist, you're going to suck relatively at all the specialist activities. Right. So to gain attention, um, putting out like a, a shitty sparring video and a shitty parkour video. Right. And a video. Right. So uh-huh. But you can go to a boxing class and notice that 1% of the time they play with tennis balls. And you can just go spend five hours a day playing with tennis balls for three weeks. And then you can be as good as Lomachenko at punching <laughs> tennis balls. Because Lomachenko knows that tennis balls don't actually have that much impact on his performance. Right. He's not going to spend that much time on it. He spends right. much time on pad work and sparring and heavy bag work. Right. So what I call this is the problem of fishing from the shallow end of the Pareto distribution. (laughs) 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 So which so which which side are you calling the shallow end? Like the shallow end. The shallow end is right, is where you're getting um you're putting 80% of the effort out to get 20% of the benefit. Or 90% of the effort to get 1% of the benefit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So if your approach to, to how you're going to extract value from boxing is to practice combinations and punch uh, punch tennis balls, but to never spar, to never do heavy bag work, to never right. do a live pad work, right? 
you can do as much effort as a boxer and you can look really great on social media practicing these yeah. patterns and you have zero ability to fight. So I have a funny tangent for you on this. So uh, when I first started doing jujitsu, this was uh, at, uh, actually right before moving camp in 2016. So there's going to be jujitsu at moving camp. I was like, okay, I'll start early and get a get a jump on everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, anyway, so I started doing jujitsu. Hey, so now we need to take a moment for a word from our sponsor, which is ourselves, Evolve Move Play. You may not know this, but Evolve Move Play has an amazing online course system designed to help you take on the ideas that we share in this podcast as an actual physical practice. So we built in-depth instructional guides to help you build a complete natural movement practice, including how to safely build your skills up, how to identify areas where you can train, whether in a beautiful natural space like this, a gym, a playground, or an urban area near you, whatever you need to make it work for you. We designed a way to incorporate it into an overall natural movement lifestyle to help rejuvenate your body and mind and how to integrate mindfulness so that you can gain the most from your movement practice and translate it into your life. When you join any of our programs, you'll also get access to our exclusive members area. This is a online forum separated from all the big social media sites where you're gonna have dedicated conversations around movement mindfulness, nature connection, community, the core themes that we explore on the Evolve Move Play podcast. There's a growing community from all over the world. We're now putting the Evolve Move Play practices into their lives. We want you to join us in experiencing how powerful that can be and how powerful a space devoted to these practices can be. So if you've been loving the ideas that we share on the Evolve Move Play podcast, I think you owe it to yourself to take the next step and experience what Evolve Move Play can offer as a teaching platform. There's so many great resources for you, and we've got a variety of programs available that you can get started with that meet your level, or if you really want to save some money, you can grab one of our bundles that covers a variety of our programs. If you love the ideas that are shared on the Evolve Move Play Movement podcast, and you wanna take them from just being ideas to actually being practices that you're using in your life, then you can start today by joining us for one of our online courses, or you can save big by grabbing a bundle of many of our courses together. You can find those at the uh, link in the description or by clicking here. And one of the things I noticed like very quickly was like that you just, it's extremely hard to do. You have some experience with grappling as well, yeah? Yeah, I've been in and out of jiu-jitsu since I was 15. Nice, 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 nice. So. It knows very quickly, like there's a lot of the moves that that I would drill and I just like couldn't really do it on other people. Yeah. People would drill and they couldn't do it on me. And it was just like this enormous gap between like the way you would drill and then like what would happen in sparring. And so and so my first response to this was like, okay, I'm gonna skip the drilling. I'm just, I'm just gonna do the sparring. Mm-hmm. And in in a way, it was a success. Like there were a lot of um, the people I started with, like in the same sort of cohort that would like, they, they would focus on the drilling. They get really good at drilling and, and you give them an unresisted opponent, they do the move, it looks great. You know, it's super sharp. Uh, you give me the unresisted opponent, like, I'm like, uh, it's hard to do. 
But as soon as we start sparring, the whole day, <laughs> the game is completely different, you know, completely different. Um, and I made more progress than, than a lot of those people. Uh, granted, like, there's better ways to do it. Uh, so again this is like this is the like the problem of the generalist and how do you fish from the deep end of the predator distribution yeah yeah only one thing for martial arts yeah or that's actually what you should do i agree because yeah. it's where most of the benefit is so i i i started like i said i started training uh jujitsu and kickboxing when i was 15 years old so I trained for about a year and a half then my school shut down and then i kind of like just did some backyard sparring with friends until I was 19 yeah. and then I found some like a jujitsu club at school etc I didn't get into a real school until I was 23 I guess 24 yeah and then I was training in the first MMA school here it was a straight blast gym um so it was oh, nice. affiliates and so I had really good coaching and I was training for I think two and a half years there um I did about a year and a half of foot jujitsu, and then I only did Muay Thai after that because parkour and jujitsu were not going well together for me. My elbows were constantly fucked. Oh, interesting. So then... Sorry, what part of parkour is demanding on the elbows? All the climbing. Oh. Oh, okay. Cool. Climb-ups, and then doing arm bars all, getting arm barred every day. It's <laughs> a really dumb thing in jujitsu. Like 25 arm bars at the beginning of every class. Yeah. You know, just dead patterns, but then you have all these right. people who are over pulling the arm bar, and then you just have uh, people with chronic elbow tendonitis. Uh, okay. Um, so, so, so anyway, so then I, I didn't, I moved to Seattle to start Parkour Visions, the parkour gym down here, and I didn't train, I didn't train in a gym for nine years, hmm. except for like a couple of times when I was out on a seminar or something. Yeah, and I came back to to, to jujitsu. But what I did was I had students who are my my movement students, and I sparred yeah. them. It was like, right. if we're going to train martial arts, we're going to spar. Right. So I sparred probably, you know, once a week for many years in those nine years. Right. And I went back to the jiu-jitsu gym, and I tapped blue belts and purple belts, you know, right, right away. Right. right. Big, super athletic from doing parkour just throw people around and I still have the instincts. I still have the awareness of how to move yeah. my body with another person. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I was listening to Faraz Sahabi and he was talking about how pad work, right. Mm. Like up until basically it wasn't until the 1990s that striking coaches in the United States, at least were doing a lot of like focus mat work. Oh, Interesting. So if you go back and you look at, you know, Sugar uh, Ray Leonard, Marvin uh -huh. Hagler, Thomas Hearns, Muhammad Ali, all these guys, all they did was spar and heavy bag work and road work. Oh, interesting. They ran, they sparred, yeah. and they hit the heavy bag. And you're saying that's all you need, right? Yeah. Pad work is nice, um, but it's not necessary. Yeah. I think as a generalist, we have to, that's the key problem that generals faces is yeah select uh, select the the most relevant disciplines to be focused on and then select the best aspects of them right so do the sparring don't do the straight pattern work right if you're going to do parkour like play chase tag yeah yeah 
don't just mess around on rails. If you're going to do, yeah. you know, if you're going to do dance, dance, man, <laughs> just practice patterns. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of at the heart of my philosophy and the philosophy of kind of aliveness as it applies to, to movement practice. Yeah. That's, that's sort of where I've been at for a few years. And, and, and now I'm starting to, to even rethink that a little. Um, I guess it, it depends on the context, I suppose. So I think one of the things, because like with, with Jiu-Jitsu, for instance, like I'll, I'll give you the example of like how I would, how I would teach a new student Jiu-Jitsu. Like um, there would be a good chunk of sparring but I would also find a way to like, because like, at the end of the day, like I think I think we're we're kind of talking about changing perception action coupling. Yep. Right? We want to change. If if you encounter a certain situation, you perceive a certain situation. We want to change your reaction to it and replace it with something that is a, a better reaction, right? A better, quicker, more accurate, more effective. One of the things, like if you see, like with uh, like with all this stuff with AI, right? Like it's, it's the same sort of idea, artificial intelligence. They run the same sort of things we do. They're modeled after how the brain works. Mm -hmm. um, and what's really cool with AI is you can just run cycles of refinement, right? There's all this complicated math of like uh, gradient descent and how you're going to essentially try to optimize. And there's all these different algorithms of how you do things. But imagine like, so you have a model and then say there's, there's a hundred instances of that you, you make slight variations in each, uh, in each, okay, ring it back. So there, there's, there's a, there's a program this guy, this YouTuber made where you could basically uh, try to teach these shapes to like walk. Yeah. So you, you make this geometric shape and then it would make, uh, you could change like the, what the population is, say, say the population is like 100. And for each generation, you have 100, a population of 100 objects with each slight variations. They each try to walk a certain distance. One of them or a few of them are going to get the farthest. And you take those. And then you make those the base for the next generation. And you make small changes to each of those. And then you run it over and over. You do generation, generation, generation. And, you know, with a computer, like you can just do hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, right? And you just run this over and over and over and over. And in a way, like this is sort of what sparring is, right? Like you, exactly. this is this is what the brain is really, the brain is really doing a much better version of that when we actually just spar. But one of the things that happens fairly quickly uh, is like you just you just run into like the same pattern right so like the you, you get the shape that like works fairly well and that's it like all the variation like it's it's somewhat optimized and so any of the variations like generally make it worse so it just yeah it's yeah. Sticks with that same pattern yeah so that's yeah. that's a local minute uh local optimum right so you're local. stuck in a local optimum. Yes. It's not a global optimum. And yes. the thing that you're describing that is um, the, the idea of like an extinction function or operant processing. So this is huge for me in how we conceptualize, um, sorry, uh, 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 opponent processing. 
this is this is huge for how we conceptualize what makes good movement, right? Mm. So you need something that tells you whether the patterns that you are trying are actually effective. So that's the idea of opponent processing. This is um in uh in Ido's interview on London Real, he said, What kind of muscles you have, bro? No, what kind of patterns? You know? And I was like, no. I don't give a shit about what kind of patterns you have. What kind of solutions do you have? Right? Okay. What makes a great mover is the ability to solve movement problems. Mm. How do you know that you're good at solving movement problems? You're regularly exposed to different kinds of movement problems. But as you said, if you're exposed in kind of the same way over and over again, even if it's something as diverse as sparring, you can end up at this local optimum. That's exactly what happened to me when I started um, jujitsu again. So I came back to jujitsu after nine years, and I I had a really good um, kind of instinctive understanding of where I was threatened and how to kind of be reactive and defensive. But I had a very rudimentary um, offensive game. So what would happen is that I'm 6'2", 220 pounds. I would, most people who spar with me, they just will automatically pull guard. They don't want to try to fight me for the takedown. Mm. So they'll pull guard. So I'm used mm. to people pulling guard mm. and I'm going to, I'm going to break their guard. Like mm -hmm. 90% of the time I'm, I'm going to shift my hips back, put my elbows in their things, knee slice through. And then once I attain top position, I'll threaten a collar choke, which I actually never, ever hit. <laughs> Okay. Based on the threat of the collar choke, I'll get them to give up back control or an armbar. Uh -huh. And this worked for me against everyone in the gym except the most like physically powerful brackets. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. The first like five weeks I was there. But then all the purple belts like realized this is what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. And it stopped working. And I didn't have another option, right? right? But if I kept sparring like white belts, I would never stop doing that mm. because it's right, 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 right. local optimum, right? Mm -hmm. so the right kinds of exposure and variability to break yourself out of those local optimums and be able to see kind of yep. these, these next things. And that's where play is actually so powerful because mm -hmm. play essentially gets you to do that. And that was what a lot of my jiu-jitsu coaches told me. It was like, okay, you can win. Now expose yourself. Now play with all the other positions. Like yeah, go north-south, right? Make it really easy for them to roll you so you can spend some time. Like I started pulling guard all the time because I was like, yeah. I'm never going to learn to get submissions mm -hmm. from guard unless I spend time in guard. Yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of my, my reaction to what you were saying. I think of it, I think it twofold as well like there's there's one thing of like how do you assess how well you did mm -hmm. right? and in in grappling it's it's fairly straightforward generally right because it's like you get points or like you get the submission or you get submitted but like something like dance right then that problem gets a hell of a if you don't have a teacher like how do you you don't have a teacher say you've just made up a new move like how do you know what's good or not how do you like that becomes a much harder problem. But but I also think of like, a, a, I think of it as two separate things of like, how do I assess what I did? How, how good that is? 
And then also like, how do I find something better? Like, I think of those differently, actually. Um, and I think in uh, one of my friends in uh, who's in AI basically told me that that they do similar things with how they, they model. Like there's there's two separate models, one for like assessing the errors and one more for like kind of finding a better solution. Like it's it's the yeah, specific. Yeah, I'm a little rusty. It's called the exploit explore paradox. Are you familiar with that? Vaguely. Do you want to uh, explain it? Yeah. So the idea is that essentially imagine uh -huh. that you're moving through a, a network, right? Or a, right. through a landscape and there are resources in the landscape and there's yes. a cost for the extraction of the resource. Right. So the longer that you extract the resource, the higher cost you, you think, but then there's a variable cost to explore and find a new access. Right. right. So you, you run this trade off of like, do I keep staying in this? Do I keep threatening the collar choke and trying to go yeah. for the arm bar? Or do I like try to threaten the arm bar and find something off of it? Right. So that's the explore aspect. And, so, and is it worth it to do so when the arm bar works 99% exactly. of the time? <laughs> yeah. And so you're so so one thing that happens there is like you you could say, okay, I did I, I tried I tried for my collar choke uh cross collar choke into my armbar sequence, you know, this yeah. triple threat that I have, and it didn't work today. Why mm -hmm. didn't it work? Well, yeah, yeah. you know, I needed to keep my pressure more here or whatever, or, you know, I let him strip my grip when I shouldn't have. Or you could say, what's another thing that I can do, right? This system, this system, I've gone as far as I can with this system. Yeah. How do I install a new system? How do I go find a new system? Well, what's a new system that could work? Right. And that's what I think you see really great yeah. jujitsu guys do. Like if you look at John Danaher and what he's doing with Gordon Ryan, it's like you you can see how like Gordon or Gary Toner or any of these guys, like they go to competitions and they hit the same thing over and over and over again. And then they come back a year later and they're hitting a totally different system. Yeah. It's like they're like, I'm 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 doing back attacks. That's what I'm gonna specialize in then i'm doing leg attacks and that's what i'm going to specialize in um and and so there's that way of of kind of optimizing through both exploitation and exploration yeah and i think those are really useful concepts for how we apply ourselves to the, the problem of of being a movement generalist in the same sense it's like i think i i, I came up with this concept years ago of like a generalist should have a widening and deepening and and kind of be moving in between them. So widening a practice would be like if you practice parkour and MMA and basketball, you could you know go plow, practice dance, right? So you're right. widening your scope. And deepening would be like this aspect of parkour. I'm going to get really good at this. I'm going to go do bar stuff really really well. Yeah. And I think that we kind of need to uh, adjust those dials repeatedly. So we'll go wider. Then we'll go narrower, wider, narrow, wider, narrow, yeah. over and over again. And I think that kind of fits this uh, exploit and explore um, concept as well. Like there's there's the exploit explore as far as like optimizing for like a single solution, yeah. right? So like I think you have way more parkour experience than I do, but you know if I were to say like 
you know, you're, you're, if parkour was, here's this environment you're trying to get from A to B as quickly as possible through that environment, yeah. right? Then I think, and, and say you've already done it a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I could see something like this exploit, explore uh, paradox being really strong, right? Okay, you've got your path. Do you try to, and you've got your path and you have the goal of getting there faster, right? Yep. Your goal is like a, a simple quantifiable result. And the question becomes, do you try to like adjust how you go over that log to like, you know, like maybe jump a little lower so you like don't waste quite so much time there? Or do you try like a totally different route, right? Like that's where I see that that paradox being really there um, and, and more challenging of a, of a problem. I think for movement development overall, I think it's, I think it's much more easy, right? Like, I think, like, if we think of like, if, if we were to think of that, like Pareto law or, or diminishing returns on any kind of like movement or skill or position or situation, then um, you're going to get more returns on like the first exploration of that thing. And hence, it would kind of always make sense, or at least from that perspective, it would always make sense to explore the new thing. You know, yeah. like if, if you've got your, like, even if you, you're, forget if you're arm barring people, like if you've got your route that you've already gone to of, okay, they pull guard and then, then I, I pass the guard. Even if you aren't good enough to armbar someone yet, right? So that paradox is a little harder. You're going to get more development from pulling guard because you've never done it before, right? Yeah. So um, I guess on one level, I agree. I think that there is yeah. there's there's this kind of novice gains that are available. Yes. But, there's yes. A, but if we go back to the beginning of the conversation, this idea of there's a hierarchy of movement. There's things that are actually... Aha, right. uh-huh, yes. Right? So now all of a sudden you have a you have a an impetus to stay on the things that are most important to explore, mm-hmm. right? So you're you you could say okay uh, if you want to develop a, the most the most sort of general movement competency maybe you want to try everything that you possibly can in jujitsu. But if you want right. to be great at jujitsu, there's actually certain things that are keystones in the right. And you want right. to spend more of your time on those. And I think it's the same yeah. thing. It's like. Um, uh, like I think fundamentally parkour is more important than polka. Um, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, so you, so you, you do want to do that. And I also think there's this interesting aspect of, uh, I've, I've noticed this, this, this paradox or this, this sort of, there's, 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 a, there actually tends to be a, te- a personality that's associated with being a kind of, um, I would call this like a novice generalist. Yeah. And then there's a personality that's associated with being like a really stuck specialist. Right. And what I've noticed is that people who naturally pick up skills quickly or broadly athletic will often just kind of practice a lot of different things, but not necessarily to a high level. Right. People who struggle will often end up in one very specific thing. And the reason I think that for this is that 
there's a there's a psychological cost to reaching the point at which something is a struggle. And then do you continue doing it? So for someone who the the beginning phases are easy, um, there's no struggle to adopting a new sport. But there's a point at which you're in your development in any athletic discipline, you're going to struggle. Right. So you could say, like, I'm I'm doing some parkour. I'm doing really good at parkour. It's great. And now I've taken a few falls. This next set of skills is just not coming. Right. And and my buddies are now snowboarding. It's snowboarding season. Like I go to snowboarding and I'm better than all my buddies at snowboarding. All right. End of the season, it's it's getting hard. It's like all my friends are going surfing. We're off to off to surf. So I've met a lot of these guys who are just like kind of good at everything. Um, but they're not really great at anything. Mm. And to me, there's a certain shallowness to their perspective because they've never right. deeply. Right. And on the flip side, I meet these guys who like have been doing Aikido for 30 years and they feel super competent. And then they will not even accept the idea that anything else would be of value because they can't, they can't psychologically handle the idea of going back and sucking at something yeah. because they've gotten used to being the master at one thing. Right. So I think there's a, so for me, there's lessons you learn from continually putting yourself in the novice position. And there's lessons that are only available when you pursue mastery within a specific discipline. So I actually advocate for being a generalist with a specialty. Totally. Yeah. And I would agree. And that's why, that's why I kind of preface what I was saying of like, if you take that perspective, because I think that's the exception to it. Like there are things that you learn, like this is, this is one of the things like for me, like, like the, the one arm handstand is like an extremely specialist skill. Yeah. Um, and yet, like, I find it of great value for movers because like, I think there's something that you can only get from that magnitude of like, if you call it a single skill, like a one arm handstand is a single skill, like something that's going to take like, realistically like four or five years of like serious you know I, like, i've had this conversation with like lots of my friends like yuri marmerstein and yeah. aaron Cantor is one of our coaches who's a bit of one arm handstand and all these guys yeah and i'm always like oh my god this is just ridiculous cost benefit ratio like yuri told me that it took i think it took him three years and he practiced two hours a day for six days a week yeah um and i was like you could have like yeah like yeah. gone from like a a v1 to a v5 in rock climbing or v6 you could have you could have like got your purple belt in jiu-jitsu right could have like you know reached like high intermediate level advanced level in parkour in that time yeah um, you could have probably done like two of them <laughs> <laughs> that's so, generous but <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Right? Like, it's just like, to me, the cost benefit is the cost benefit is so, so low. Like, I get it. Like, if that's the thing that you want to pursue to mastery, like the, the pursuit of mastery is going to be valuable to you, no matter kind of where you pursue it. But what I would look for is, I think it, you want to master a skill that has many close transfers. Yeah. I was thinking about this. I was writing kind of like, sketching this out like why why is parkour so important why is martial arts so important mm-hmm. um i was thinking about i think gymnastics is actually a really beautiful way to conceptualize this yeah 
if you think about the core skills of men's gymnastics, right? The apparatus. You got the floor, the uneven bar or the, the parallel bars, the high bar, the rings, and the pommel horse. Mm-hmm. They these are not equal in their ability to help each other, right? Right. Tumbling donates to every other element. Sorry, in the vault. Tumbling donates to every other element, and the floor does. But pommel horse has very little positive transfer to anything other than a few floor exercises. Yeah. Right. So if you're if you're if you're gonna be a all-around gymnast, should you build the base of your skill set on floor or on pommel horse? If you're going to predict who's the, going to be the best all-around gymnast, is going to be the best tumbler on the team or the best pommel specialist on the team? Is it, it's an interesting way to put it, though, because I think in gymnastics, from, from my understanding, I don't think anyone really, like, weights it like that. Like, there's either oh, kind of the... They do, actually. So I, I used to be a gymnastics coach. Yeah? All the gymnastics coaches would tell you that tumbling is the, is the foundation of gymnastics. They spend more time practicing tumbling than any other apparatus. I guess so. That is, well, maybe at a at a basic level. But I think about like when I think about like the higher level guys, it feels to me like they're spending a pretty even. Like they're either like specialists, like you know, of course, there's all the ring specialists, right? That are just incredible on the rings. Um, but like with with that argument, right? It would kind of make sense to ignore pummel, and and you don't really see that. Like I I don't really see that. Like everyone, everyone hates well, it. Like no, no, I, again, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree. I think that, like, if you look at the way teams are constructed now, yeah, like a lot of the athletes just don't do pommel. Right? Really, you only need like you have two, two or three athletes. I think who come up and and score right, and so you'll right. you'll, you'll select. You have a few all arounders who can do pommel and a, and a specialist, and then you'll often have like. A lot of a lot of gymnasts now only compete four apparatus, and usually the really successful ones are going to compete like floor, vault, rings, high bar, floor, vault, rings, uneven bars, or sorry, uh, parallel bars. I'm not I'm not 100 sure. I haven't been sure. paying yeah. gymnastics anymore. But but I think what 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 has been happening, if my understanding is correct, what has been happening in gymnastics is that you've seen elite gymnasts. Fewer of them are actually pursuing being all-around gymnasts, and they're and if you're if you're like close to an all-arounder but can't quite make it as an all-arounder, I yeah. think the most likely skill that you drop is pommel. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, may, maybe this has happened since since I haven't been paying attention to gymnastics much the last few years. <laughs> I so haven't been paying that much attention, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was my understanding. So yeah, yeah so this comes to that that. Uh, you know, this is the hierarchy aspect of it, right? Mm. Where and so, I've been giving you a lot of my ideas, but I'm, I'm curious. You, you've talked about specifically dance and grappling should yeah. be prioritized in a movement practice. Can you give me a little bit of your thinking around why those two, or has that changed? So, well, so yeah, and so so actually, even with that kind of circling back to. Um, what we were talking about with like the the people that just kind of dabble in everything yeah. versus the people that like they don't touch anything other than Aikido, you know? Like yeah. um 
I mean, one thing that's interesting, like just from a practical perspective is like sometimes you get specialists that are so good. They just reach such a high level and like they're specialists at a high level. They're professionals. So they're training, you know, eight hours a day. So there's just such a magnitude of difference between those professionals and kind of amateurs or hobbyists, recreational trained people that some of those people are just incredible general movers out of like the transfer they have from that enormous um, skill and attributes. There's like a few, few athletes that come to mind. Kautera, um, Jason Gatson, do you know him? I'm not familiar with either of those. Who's Kautera? Yeah. Kautera's a, he's a jujitsu guy, like 12 time world champion, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the lighter weights. He trains, uh, is academy here in San Jose that I trained mm-hmm. trained at for a number of years, but he is generally like quite athletic for someone that like really doesn't do um, yeah for someone that doesn't really dabble in, in many other things. Like he's seems extremely athletic, and then Jason Gatson also uh, gymnast. He was. One of those like sort of like tragic stories of like he was like gonna be so good at coming up like junior world championships. He was like uh I think for 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 a time he was one of the best gymnasts in the he was the best gymnast in the US, for the male gymnast at least, and one of the best in the world, and just had a number of like crippling ACL injuries that were just like no. <laughs> yeah. Um but so I I <laughs> I did a gymnastics camp like years back because I saw I saw he was teaching and some other Olympian. And uh, so I was like, OK, this is cool. Like I'll, I'll sign up. I get to like, you know, do gymnastics all day. And uh, it was like. The, the ages, it was like eight and up. <laughs> so, so I messaged I messaged the organizers. I was like, is there a limit for the age? <laughs> I'm like, no. So I showed up and there's like all these eight, nine, ten year olds. There's me. And then there's like Jason Gatson. So we got to like hang out and, and chat a lot. And I was just like, it was just interesting. It was really fascinating for me because he was at that point, I think, retired for, you know, eight, ten years, something like that. He had like 14 surgeries before he retired. And so I was really curious, like, okay, here's this like real specialist in, in a arguably a very transferable field. Yeah. Uh, how is he holding up? And my God, he was incredible. Like he was just screwing around with various things. Like, like you would not believe. <laughs> and it's not like I, you know, went over and, and, uh, tried to like wrestle him and <laughs> assess his wrestling ability. But like, I've definitely seen a lot of that as far as like, um, I think the people that I've seen that are really the best overall, like have just tended to be um, kind of professionals in one field that also dabble in others. Or, or like the other thing that comes to mind is like dancers, like and, and this is why like uh, I believe dance is 
one of the highest, if not the highest discipline I would place on this hierarchy of, of fields of movement is like, there's this, uh, there's this kind of, I call it like an axis of, of movement or an axis of movement development of motor digestion. Yeah. So it's this idea, like Ida calls it chewing. Mm-hmm. Of, like you see a new move, mm-hmm. how quickly can you see, yeah. understand, digest it, and then replicate it in your body, mm-hmm. right? And because dancers do this like all day, they get so incredibly good at it that they can see a new move, something they've never really seen before, and they can replicate it in seconds better than you know people could do, like an untrained person could do with like a year of practice. In yeah. day, you know, like so I know exactly what you're talking about. I I started. Tr- so I got interested in dance because of a television show. So you think you can dance? Oh yeah. I was interested in movement. I saw that show. Right. Like, oh my God. Like all these patterns, all this stuff that's happening. Right. This dance. It's amazing. And they're, they have mm. such, um, God, what's the term facility with yeah. movement. And you'd see the stuff that like people were going off on in movement culture, just pop up in somebody's dance and then be connected to this incredibly fluid, beautiful flow in relationship. to right. emotion. It's like, right. incredible. So, I had a, a student at my parkour gym who was interested in dance too. I was like, let's go do this. She's like, okay, I've scouted out this dance class. We're going to go to this dance class. Yeah. So I show up. I'm like 10 minutes late. She's not there. I walk in and I don't realize there's actually two rooms in the gym. And you have to walk through the first room to get to the second room, which is where the dance yeah. class is. So I end up in an advanced professional modern dance class. <laughs> <laughs> not even the intermediate professional. No. Advanced professional like modern dance class. Yeah, so I'm in this class. There's 18 women, two gay men, and me. And <laughs> I'm about 70 pounds heavier than anybody else <laughs> in the room. And they're doing their warm-up, which is choreography, right? right. It's just, they have a choreo. Oh, their warm-up is just dance. It's just a choreographed routine. And so I'm just in the back trying to follow her along. And then she teaches an eight movement phrase in which she never uses a word. She never uses, she never says, this is a something, right? This is how you do it. Right. Shows you the movement. And then she tells you how she, she wants you to express within the movement. Right. Um, so then there was another eight movements. Then there was another eight movements. Then there was another. <laughs> eight movements. So two hours later, the 32 movement choreo piece that we're expected to replicate. Yeah. And I have no fucking idea what's happening. But luckily that first day, um, it was a lot of ground movements. So yeah, all yeah. the movement culture yeah. stuff, all the parkour yeah, yeah. warm-ups I'd done, all the systema kind of like propped me along. Right. And so I walked up to her afterwards and I was like, I, I don't know if this is the right class for me. She's like, I want you to keep coming. So for six weeks, I was in this advanced wow. class, and it was the hardest class I've ever taken. Um, it was absolutely absurd. And after that, I was really obsessed with that capacity yeah. of dancers to absorb new material because it was so outside the scope of anybody else that I experienced. And I do think it's a really extraordinary ability. I think that 
uh, people who specialize in dancers have major lacunae in other areas in the same way. But that's something that's really, really useful to think about. How can I get a piece of that? For sure. I totally agree. I'm curious. And I have my own ideas on this. I'm curious what you would say the, the weakness of dancers and let's say, let's say contemporary dancers. Contemporary dancers. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what parkour is extraordinary at, like one of the things it's extraordinary at is getting you to deal with fear, right? Right. Absent things. Yes. I don't think that someone who comes from dance is going to easily handle jumps at height. Yep. And I also think yeah. they're not easily handle confrontation. Some of the crazier aspects of contact improv might transfer better to like a fight scenario. Um, yeah, but, yeah, but even then, probably not. Not, not ready for contact. Not going to go yeah. play football well. Yeah. Um, but I think a football player could go do some dance and find an interesting transfer to their football player while playing. I, I didn't have that experience. <laughs> Maybe some others might, but. Um, I, you know, you hear that story, right? Like, oh, yeah. this running back, you know, does ballet in the off season. And it's, it's right, like, right. Um, one thing I think dance, contemporary dance in particular, does really well is get you comfortable contacting the ground. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that's really valuable. I think, I think it's actually really surprising how many team sport athletes don't have good vocabulary for and sensitivity to hitting the ground and recovering off the ground. Um, mm-hmm. Parkour. All the like locomotions, uh, disciplines, uh, contemporary dance system are all great for that. Yeah. So the way that I have conceptualized things, I think of movement as moving from a sort of utilitarian to expressive framework. And that if you go back to that original idea of locomotion, manipulation, interaction, um, I think that dance is at every level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that. Some people actually are much more psychologically set up to be oriented towards dance, and they, it's much easier to actually get them into any practice of movement by orientating them through dance. So in our mm-hmm. seminars, we actually use contact dance to introduce all of the kind of roughhousing stuff. So before we ever let people grapple, we have them mm-hmm. dancing together. Yeah. And we found that that just completely changes the dynamics and the like gets rid of so many of the problems you see in spazzy early white belt style sparring. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not that much of a dancer myself. Like I admire it, but like yeah. when I'm widening, I'll bring in dance, but when I'm like, but I always kind of end up narrowing down to parkour and MMA and then strength mm-hmm. training is just to keep me right going on those things. Right. Um, when- when you say you see movement going from utilitarian to expressive, do you mean that like over time, like on on the whole, the culture, no. or do you see that on an individual level? What, what do you? I just think that there's a spectrum in the expression of the movement, right? So like uh, locomotion, mm. right? Like Edo Portal style locomotion is like, in a lot of ways is like dance stripped of it's like contemporary dance stripped of a lot of its expressive elements. Right. Right. Yeah. So you, can, you can play with all of the patterns that you see in Floreo locomotion in a dance setting. Right. In the same sense, like you could add obstacles and now you're doing parkour, but you can dance the parkour. Right. You right. Can, you can, um, 
you can do say kettlebell juggling, right? You could turn it into a dance. Right. You dance with a dance with like a contact ball, dance with a mm-hmm. a broom, mm-hmm. you know, Fred Astaire. Right. And obviously you can dance with other people. Right. And you can even dance in ways that mimic and contain elements of combat. That's what Capoeira is. In fact, many, many forms of dance are actually very, very linked into the uh, the martial arts of the culture that they derive from. Right. Would so, you say Sistema is like that as well? Possibly. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the link between it, but I'm, there's, there's an interesting way in which the ground engagement training in Sistema is very like the ground practices of contemporary dance. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my perspective on dance. It's like it's not so much uh like one of the it's weird. It's like an umbrella. Yeah. Does that make sense? Rather than a pillar. So it wouldn't be like you do parkour, uh, you do martial arts, you do this and you dance. It's like mm, dance can exist within all of them. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Do you know uh Shira? I do, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. There's, there's, there's uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those lines, but uh, uh, so she's she's over here in Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. And so I moved to I moved to SF like okay. a month or two ago. So I've been going up up there almost every week. Is she actually in Berkeley right now? I believe so. Okay. I mean, I, I, know, I think I, I know, saw her like last week at the athletic playground. She could be out this week, but <laughs> okay. sorry. This is unimportant to the people listening to the podcast. Uh, but yeah, Shira is awesome. Go play, uh, go play with Shira for sure. So tell me about what you're experiencing with Shira. I, I yeah, went went to sit next to her and uh was like, Yeah, do you you want to dance? And she's like, We're already dancing. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those like the same. You can you can definitely see it as an umbrella. Um, I I kind of see this both though because for me like I, I'm always investigating. Like whenever I see someone that's like good at a particular movement, good at movement overall, any of it, like I just like I always just like grill them. <laughs> like, what have you been doing? What's your movement history? Like uh, how have you practiced this? Like what? Um, what led to this, you know? Um, and yeah, so far I've been, I've been really impressed with how I've seen dancers pick up new disciplines, even, even far, far related ones, even, even the grappling and, uh, you know, weightlifting that you would, you would think would be much farther. And so, yeah, like you definitely, there's definitely weaknesses. And, and I think, the ones you raised were mostly like uh, at a somatic level, right? That on that somatic level, and and that's quite interesting, right? And and let's say that's in dance in general, but like on that somatic level, dance very much does not prepare you for like yeah, like you mentioned, like fear at all mm-hmm. or combat. Fun really at all you know Mm -hmm. um and and yet like if you already had enough predisposition to 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 try that i've seen dancers pick up 
you know, very quickly uh, grappling and things that I've had quite a bit of. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> for, for me, I think one of the things that, one of the physical things that I've seen in dancers is they seem to have a very hard time with like, uh, I, I call this a software side uh, and maybe we'll, we'll get into this, but one of the software axes of movement of like explosive force production, mm -hmm. I'm, not just, I'm not actually like how strong you are, but like there's a certain coordination that you use to produce force explosively or large amounts of force. Yeah. You're not good at being stiff. They're very good at being yielding. They're not good at being stiff. Um, yeah. And, and I've, I've found like, you know, some of these very high level dancers, like, and they, they pick up these movements so fast, but to have the nuance of like the triple extension in like a clean, mm -hmm. like somehow it, it escapes them, you know, it's just because they, it seemed my, my theory is they've just never really had to do that. You know? Yeah. I think it might be actually, so, so you have positive transfer and you have negative transfer, right? Uh, where you'll often like gymnasts pick up many things really well, but one mm -hmm. thing that's very hard to teach many gymnasts is actually to do a shoulder roll. Like a, like a forward roll, roll, like, roll. like, yeah, like a judo. Yeah. As opposed to the way roll. they do yeah. like over. They will, they will return to the pattern of, and they're very actually like many gymnasts are extremely stuck in sagittal plane movements Interesting. So, or, or they're like, they're very bad at off access. Yeah. So I struggle with this myself because I have a, a gymnastics background. Yeah. Learning to flip off axis. So like doing a corkscrew where your leg is, you know, close to horizontal, super yeah. unnatural for me. Right. Mm. Much more like get that leg straight overhead and do a right. do a, a, a full twist there. And I've seen that a lot in gymnasts. Gymnasts um, have absorbed a frame in which proper movement is done you know, basically perfectly sagittal, perfectly uh, frontal, yeah. perfectly transverse, and you never mix them up. Yeah. And, you know, trickers obviously have this much wider scope of planar movements available to them. And yeah. that can actually be weird for a gymnast to try and pick up. And so I think in the same sense, what you might be seeing, like, I haven't noticed this in, in dancers, but it, like in yogis, like yogis are the least elastic and powerful people that you'll meet. Because they've literally turned off their stretch shortening cycle. And yeah. I think if a, if a dancer is focused on yielding and that beautiful sensitivity and movements that they have, the type of, of tensioning that's associated with, um, with doing a clean might be contrary to them in the same way that doing a fork roll or a shoulder roll is contrary for a gymnast. I mean, one thing you'll see a lot, well, uh, another example is the turnout, the foot turnout, and the foot point. So. Yeah, but I mean, most dancers have some level of ballet background. So, right. like, I had uh, I've had some Cirque athletes who I worked with who did parkour with me, and I had this one uh, young woman who had a big dance background, and like, every time her feet left the ground, they're perfectly pointed, right? So she's doing the vault, <laughs> the feet are pointed, everything's pointed, and it's actually like right. inhibiting her ability to just move fluidly and powerfully. Uh, like, she's not able to get into the wow. plantar, uh, you know, slightly dorsal right. up position to to hit that ground with power um like arms like gymnast arms you'll see that kind of thing in in dancers as well they have very uh specific gait patterns that are based on grace and beauty and not 
speed and power. Right. So there is there is those kinds of negative transfer limits. Yeah. Have you would you say so I think what what Paul Quinn calls it is like this interference effect. Yeah. But but would you actually say that you've seen some of these athletes that let's say the transfer is so bad, like they have such a hard time with this new thing that you'd think they would actually have been better off. They would learn that movement faster or oh. be able to do it better faster if they had never done their sport before. For sure. For sure. I think that it's easier. It's often easier to teach a total novice to do a shoulder roll than, than a gymnast. Uh, and and like, like people run, like it's yeah. not that like, it's harder to teach someone to run well, who's been taught to run in a way that like really drilled for thousands, like hundreds of thousands of repetitions, yeah. a gate pattern that's not effective in a, like an actual athletic situation yeah. um, or, or a landing pattern. Right. So like if you're used to landing in uh second position all the time, right. Uh, like, I mean, think about how many times, a, a ballet dancer will have landed like that. Right. And then you come into a parkour context and you want to get them to land with their feet relatively straight ahead and to be able to hinge with their hips more. It's like mm-hmm. you're now having to do so much counter-programming compared to where they've been. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I, I, I feel like people generally, I feel like that's been that concept is like abused as an excuse for why you have to learn something the correct way, Mm. you know? And then, and that's why you have to train with me, you know? Like, Oh, I get what you mean. Yeah. You know, if you don't, if you don't get the, they're um, yeah, you're, you're grooving in the wrong patterns. You're not, you're not doing it. But like, this other thing is like contemporary dance is not ballet. And Mm. it's also not, like um you know swing dance right say dance like we're we're actually describing a lot of very different things and so i think contemporary dancers are much more adaptable high transfer than ballet dancers totally Uh, totally i had a conversation when i was first starting thinking about all this stuff back in like 2006 at a regional gymnastics uh camp with a Cirque du Soleil um recruiter CrossFit had said that like gymnasts were the athletes who learn sports fastest. And he was saying, right. you know, like at Cirque, what you have is you have athletes from all these different sub-disciplines that are just hanging out. And what will happen a lot is that someone will come up with a random movement challenge. Yeah. What he said was the athletes who were the best at solving random movement challenges were capoeiristas. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that that is certainly not, it's definitely not what I would have guessed that but they would say. I mean, it's one guy's anecdote, but right. I've thought about it sure. for a long time. And I think there's some interesting reasons why capoeira is like a pretty good, a sport that has a lot of near donors to it. You have, it has a musical interaction, so it donates sure. to dance. Yeah. Right? Um. It's alive, right? You have to throw, like, unlike gymnastics where you have a pre-planned tumbling line, you have to be able to do your acrobatics. Yeah, there. It's a it's a amplification of complexity, 
right? So you're getting better at it by adding more and more complex moves. So you're you're getting that that challenge to learn novel movement stimulations over and over again. It involves interaction with a partner. Mm. Yeah. It involves elasticity and power on the legs and with the upper body. So that gives it a lot of positive transfer potential. And it's both cooperative and competitive. Yeah. Because there's a there's a, a rhythm that you do with the partner in addition to having the competitive aspect, which is right. a very weird liminal space. Yeah. So I, I do like Capoeira as one of the, the core disciplines. Um, but I think the game is much more important than the patterns. Mm. Interesting. So um, I wanted to go to the, the motor learning stuff because we haven't really touched yeah. deeply on that. Your critique of human culture has a lot to do with the the motor learning perspective is um, kind of not up to date with the current science. So you've been talking about optimal theory. I'm, I actually wasn't familiar with optimal theory. I'm familiar with, I think, with a lot of the stuff that goes into it, right? So I know yeah. about perception action coupling and ecological dynamics and external focus of attention and athlete yeah. autonomy. Um, but I hadn't seen that framework of putting kind of all those things together. And also the psychological aspect, right? Enhanced uh, yeah. effectivities. So tell us a little bit about uh, your perspective on optimal theory, how you're applying that to movement and where you see it kind of not, like where's where are the failure points you're seeing? Why is that something that's so needed within the movement community? <laughs> so in, in a way, I feel like uh, it's... One, one is like a damn shame. Like even someone like yourself hasn't heard. It. It's like, what the hell is, what is going on? That like, Gabriel Wolf, right? You know? Huh? Gabriel Wolf was the researcher. Yeah, uh, Wolf and, and Luthway. Yeah, so um, Wolf is the main mentor of Nick Winkleman, I think, who's my, like, he's my main guy on external cues, who I've had on my podcast multiple times. He's a big influence. Nice. Yeah, so, yeah. He's like a guy to have. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, so basics of optimal theory is like um, my understanding of it is kind of centered. It's centered around focus on task goal. Yeah. So basically anything that increases focus on task goal is going to increase performance and in learning. And so then uh, Wolf theory was basically like, Okay, we've got all this basic stuff of like how learning works, but like this hasn't accounted for like um, attention and intrinsic motivation. And hence it's, hence it's incomplete and hence yeah, it needs yeah. to be accounted for. And so uh, these three big things that um, she's bringing to the table that contribute to uh, focus on task goal are um, attentional focus, so internal or external focus cues, um, autonomy. So like <laughs> how, <laughs> you know, do you, do you cue people that they have to do what you tell them that, that this is your structure. This is how it works. This is what you've got to do because otherwise you're going to have bad patterns and then you're going to have negative transfers. <laughs> You'll have uh, reverse motor engineering. Exactly. Or, or that like these are some ideas that you've had um, 
but maybe they could come up with something better, right? And like this is a starting point and, and this is more of like a playground of a framework for you to explore with, yeah. right? Like those are two completely different um, yeah. mindsets. So we have autonomy. Uh, yes. And then the third one is uh, expectancies. Yep. So how well, and, and this was, uh, I think for me, the most uh, counterintuitive of, of the bunch. This was quite interesting for me. <laughs> With, Coming from Edo, I can imagine what it would be. Yeah. Well, so there's an interesting thing here. And, and anyway, so, so the Go basic ahead. definition first, like expectancies is, you know, you have a task, right? One of the one of the studies that um, was quoted in in the optimal theory paper was like a golf task, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, okay, so I get you know, you get two groups of people, and yeah, give them a club, and and you say, okay, like you're gonna you're gonna try to putt the ball or whatever, shoot it, hit it. I I don't know what exactly distance they were doing, but you're gonna try to get the ball into this circle, right? Here's the hole. Try to get it within this circle. And say, and then they had two different groups. So one of them, the circle was really big, right? So it's like, okay, this is an approachable goal. And so that group is thinking in their head, their expectancy is better because they're told um, basically getting within that circle is good. Yeah. So if they're thinking, okay, I can, I think I can do better than that, right? They're thinking like already they're expecting to do well versus the other group they had a smaller circle, right? They were told like, what is a good performance was a higher bar. They had to hit it within a, a smaller radius of this hole. And hence their expectancies were lower. They're thinking in their heads, I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to do that, right? Maybe I'm not good at this before they start. And so the group with the bigger circle that the, the higher expectancies they had the same target they had the same task but the group that expected they would do better essentially relative to the norm actually did better yep. you know and then so what happens is um with with any of the the things in kind of optimal theory like basically if you do well on the task that feeds back into the expectancies mm -hmm. so it it creates this like virtuous cycle, they call it, of you do the task, you do well, so you have feedback. I know I can do it well because I just did it well. That increases your expectancies. And hence, that's going to further increase your focus on task goal. It's going to further increase your performance and learning. It's this great virtuous cycle versus the other way. You do the task, you do it badly. And you have evidence you did it badly, so you're expecting to perform it worse. You do it again. There's less focus on task goal, probably because you're thinking about how bad you are. <laughs> Self-conscious. Yeah. And now you do even worse again. And it's it's a it's a vicious cycle now. Yeah. Um yeah, so that that's a pretty interesting one. And one of the things where I, I expect there's some complexity is there's so many high-level coaches and teachers, like Ido being one of them, that they completely, like, they don't set the, they, they set the expectancies really low. Mm -hmm. You know, you come in and it's like, yeah, you try a handstand, they're not like, 
This is good. It's like, uh, this is, you'll be good when you can do a one arm for 30 seconds on each side. And until then, like. (laughs) Weaker than a mosquito's fart. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, so, so I expect there's some sort of complexity with, um, there's, there's so much of that, that, that that's so common in, in really high level teachers that I, I wonder if there's some sort of, some sort of exception there. Like if for most people it's worse, if you give them like lower expectancies, but then you motivate some of them to keep going. Like, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, uh, there's so many, there's so many threads I want to pick up here. It's a really yeah. conversation. Um, so I actually do think that negative information, we are, we are, um, we're actually attuned to negative information more. So negative right. information has a higher salience that can have more impact on us. Right. So there is a way in which when it's properly formulated, uh, the negative is going to penetrate more deeply than positive. Right. So if it's well designed. <laughs> <laughs> A tool, right? Yeah. I was I was actually I was talking to my therapist this morning yeah. about the fact that I have I have an extraordinary propositional memory. I can remember, you know, like the date that England was invaded, right? 1067. Right. Whatever. Nice. Um, like those things pop into my head really easily. What I don't have is very good episodic memory. Mm. So my wife's memory of her childhood is very rich and has lots of detail. My memory of my childhood is very vague. My memory of like 10 years ago is pretty vague. Mm. Um, so what I was realizing was that like it makes it hard for me to learn certain lessons because like I can't sustain a negative emotional frame for a, a long period of time. Yeah. And so a lot of what motivates people is like, you know, get away from pain. But if you can't remember the pain that you felt, you won't, <laughs> you won't, keep, you won't sustain the, the changed behavior, right? <laughs> there, yeah. There's there's um there's like a you know, research on this in, in rats and motivation, right? So yeah. you can, you, you put it, you tie a, a spring to a rat's tail. Right. And it has a door that it can access. So you can put, uh, you know, it's a male rat and you put the smell of a female in estrus on the other side. Uh-huh. How hard does it pull? Right. Uh-huh. Then you put the smell of a cat. Right. Right behind it. How hard does it pull? Uh-huh. Well, the, the the rat will pull the hardest when there's a fertile female on the other side and a cat behind it. Right? <laughs> Best to have the carrot and the stick. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The problem with negative, like if you look at like the theory of training dogs, they'll yeah. talk about operant conditioning, right? So you can, you can, um, you can, remove something positive so that's negative punishment you can add something yeah. uh positive that's positive reward yeah um, you can you can add something negative that's um positive punishment and you can remove something negative that's positive uh, negative reward right mm-hmm. many trainers now are are just they're positive plus as much as possible because the downside of negative it's not that it doesn't work it's that it often has negative side effects yes. so if you, you know, if you hit your dog when it raises its leg to pee in the house, you might get it to not pee in the house, 
but you might also decrease its trust in you and also amplify its general anxiety. Yeah. So there, are, I don't know, there's some complexity there. But the other aspect of that is that I think that there's ways in which you can get people to be psychologically reliant on you by being abusive of them. And so I think a lot of very successful coaches are successful basically because of Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but, okay, I'm gonna be, this is going to really be controversial there. I So when I first started coaching, I was doing, or when I first started EMP, I was doing a lot of online coaching. And like yeah. probably 70% of my students were ex-EDO students. Yeah. And there was, and I would ask them like what your programming would be. And they would send me the program they were on with Edo and be like yeah. four hours a day yeah. of ring strength and hand balancing. And everyone who came to work with me was basically broken by it. Right. And, and they all had elbow tendonitis. Um, <laughs> and, all medium. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I was, I was like, you know, I would just strip. 90% of the volume out of their program and yep. you know then start adding some cool parkour stuff into it and they'd be like well I'm having fun and it's it's rewarding and I'm not in pain this is pretty great <laughs> I'm still making gains um but I started having this this idea that like so if you spent $1200 on a piece of paper um yeah. and then were psychologically abused by the people who gave you the piece of paper and you abuse yourself for for 12 weeks to make it to the end of of this piece of paper like you're either a sucker or it had to be the best program ever and if you put 4 hours in it's probably going to have an impact right it doesn't have to be very optimized to have a huge impact when you put that much volume in so i call this the, the stockholm uh syndrome <laughs> theory of of, of movement culture <laughs> movement attention, that's what it calls it but yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's a meat grinder right like because there's right. a lot of people who burn out of it but the people who go through it they're so uh, they're so devoted to it at the end of it because they've because it's a sunk cost fallacy problem right you've put so much in yeah if you don't actually think it was worth much you have to question your own decision making right yeah <laughs> so yeah bad. Yeah, so there's a lot there. <laughs> no, no, this is great. I didn't mean to make it just an Edo bashing session, but yeah, yeah, I'm we should, we should, we like, we like Edo. <laughs> I actually think Edo is genuinely brilliant, and I, uh, yeah. I like, I feel like, I feel like I've learned so much by disagreeing with Edo. Yeah, like I think he's like because he's so articulate and so charismatic. Like, like I said, I did that quote earlier about it. It's your patterns, bro. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that made me understand why I disagreed with it better because he said it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the way science goes generally, right? It's yeah. like we move further through the disagreements. Yeah. yeah and, it's and, processing. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and so this is like my, one of my critiques of how like movement culture teaching is structure of like it's very much not focused on autonomy like there is it's it's controlling language yeah. right um so and so the the controlling language just in the literature like is something you can actually study of like you give someone a cue 
Sorry, the, the the phrase whore shoppers is just uh it's just like demanding to be expressed. Whore shoppers? Whore shoppers, you never heard that one? That's no. like people who train with other movement teachers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Yeah, one. Okay. Go on. <laughs> yeah, so things like that, right? Uh, Where, that would be controlling language. Yes. <laughs> that would even be like meta controlling language. <laughs> like that but like you know so so you know you give someone a task and basically you give them the same task in two ways you either say step one two three four five six you must do it exactly like this um or like you can give them the same instructions but like step one two three four five six these are ideas Mm -hmm. right and so that's the controlling language versus autonomy supportive language. And what you see when you actually study that and, and have both groups and see who does better, the autonomy supportive language group does better. Yeah. So that's one thing that in the movement culture um, and in a lot of martial arts cultures mm-hmm. is very absent. Um, not completely absent, but extremely absent, you know, Um so that's one one huge thing that I, that I think we can be doing better. Um, external focus, another thing, like in, in a way, it comes down to like there's there's no awareness of optimal theory. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. Like I was reading the description of optimal theory, and it's like very much like what I'm trying to do with uh, my son, right? Yeah, um, and I was like, oh yeah, I get it. That that's that's what I'm trying to do. It was actually confirming because like. I'm so positive. Like I was just like, I get really excited about things. And I, I try not to say that. Oh, I, I don't say much. That's negative. Right. And I was like, yeah, am I, am I being too nice? Um, yeah. I was like, no, no, no. Enhance the activities. Um, it, it, it actually kind of like, it feels a little bit like a combination of, I mean, it's definitely like a, a bit of eco, uh, ecological dynamics type approaches, right. Mm. The focus aspect. And then it, it actually feels like it's congruent with play research, which has been a big area of my focus. And it's like, mm. okay, we have intrinsic drive, autotelic um, things, flow, mm. right? Going back to flow, yeah. like the idea of enhanced effectiveness. One of the things we talk about is like me, I Chicks Mahali talked about the difference between like, you can have like objective metrics of progress, right? Or you can have subjective metrics of progress. So you can, you can, you can, um, you can actually, change your experience of flow or your degree of anxiety by creating a more refined mental model of what success looks like. So the example that I always give is like, let's say you're like a 115 pound relatively weak person who shows up for jujitsu for the first time. And you happen to go into a gym where like, it's mostly experienced, strong, athletic people, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, you're going to get crushed every day. Right. So in the, in the play research, they find that if you succeed less than 30% of the time, uh, you lose motivation to mm-hmm. engage in profitable play in particular. Mm. So you can imagine that a lot of people go to jiu-jitsu and they do not tap out their opponent 30% of the time. They don't even succeed in not getting tapped 30% of the time. In the beginning. Yeah. Right. So the, so if you make the obje- the objective, just tap or be tapped, like there, there's going to be a huge group of people who are just never going to be, who are not going to be successful enough soon enough and are going to get burned out of the sport. Right. So what those people need is actually to adopt 
a mindset of small wins, right? So Rafe comes over, he threatens the car, cross collar choke, he gets you in the arm bar, does that every day. You're pissed off. So you say, okay, I'm not going to tap him, but he's not going to arm bar me today. Yeah. Right. right. Or he's only going to arm bar, or he's not going to arm bar me as many times. <laughs> more this is more likely right so it's like <laughs> we're go okay so i got tapped a bunch but it went from six times to three yeah. times yeah that's my win right yeah 50 percent less tapping is my win yeah right uh or he had to go to the 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 the, the rear naked choke instead of the, the arm <laughs> arm, right and right. so that's that's the type of things you have to be able to adopt it as, as yeah. wins. And I think so there's this that's the psychological education of the enhanced effectivities. Yeah. Um, and it also reminds me of like placebo research. Mm. I was listening to Lane Norton on uh, on um, Anderson Burns <laughs> podcast. And he was saying that you have three. They did a re, uh, they did a, a, a research group where they had like three groups doing strength training. A control group, a group, uh, a tro control group doing nothing, a group on uh, on testosterone, and a group on mock testosterone. Yeah. And the group on mock testosterone improved almost as much relative to the control yeah. group as the group on actual testosterone. Yeah. So th there's also research that shows like if you trick people into thinking they ran faster than they ran, they will actually run faster at the end of the training <laughs> cycle, which is like this gets to yeah. How 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 much do you want to delude your students, right? Um, it was a hell of a thing. Yeah. So the, the placebo is and so what happens though is if you think of it as placebo and you recognize the concept of nocebo, right? That, that we have right. the power to go in the opposite direction. A lot of this negative, highly controlling language is actually acting as a nocebo. Right. All this like, oh, your movement patterning is broken, all those things, those are like oh if you keep if you keep running with your feet turned out you're going to have terrible right. pain your your yes. knees are going to fall apart so, yeah well, yeah self fulfilling prophecies totally so i've been yeah. so the vicious the virtuous and vicious cycle right so my son is 8 years old and he um he can do 15 pull-ups he has a a 19 inch approach vertical 14 inch standing vertical wow he can do an L-sit, press to a tuck plunge. Um, he's getting very close to doing like a strict parkour climb up. Yeah. Do double Kongs. Wow. Uh, he's done an eight-foot wall run. And he can do backflip to backflip on the trampoline, front flips. And so it's very interesting because I've, I've been taking him to the ninja gym for a long time. And we, we were to, doing parkour classes with him and he wasn't really enjoying it. So we dropped him from parkour classes and we just took him to open gym. So he had total autonomy. He could determine mm -hmm. his time. Yeah. And then slowly I started just saying, here's a challenge. Do you want to try this? And like, there were times when he was like really mad at me for challenging him because really? it felt like I was forcing him to do something. And every time I would say, it's just a challenge. Like you can do it or not do it. Yeah. And like, so we went through multiple cycles of like me inviting him into stuff, him feeling like it was an expectation and me having to tell him there was no expectation. He can choose to do whatever he wants. Mm. But then over time, it's like, he's now, he comes up to me in the gym and says, Hey dad, can we work on something? 
Nice. Right, like, let's go work on this. I want to, yeah. I want to get my level three climb. Right. And so he's selecting, he's selecting to have me coach. Him. Mm. And when we do that, external focus of attention on the, the skills, right? He's doing backflips, look at the wall, you know, grab your legs. Um, and tons of feeding him positive every time. Like one of the big things you see is that he'll self-select like a very strict criteria of success and i'll Mm. have to be like no 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 actually what you did was really successful even though it wasn't exactly what you set out to do Mm. Um, and and then and then that so so we have the autonomy too right it'll be like yesterday we were at the ninja gym and i was like okay here's a challenge do a seat drop uh, uh bounce to your feet do it immediately do a backflip land bounce once into a front flip you know and then he just gets to choose whether he wants to do it or not and then it's like oh does that sound interesting would you like to try that and it's like okay i'm dialed in um so we i i i really like that framework and i think it it's really interesting the flip so the the flip side i wanted to to touch on is so my daughter is 10 years old and I try to approach things the same way with her, but she has this problem, which is that her brother is learning faster than her, mm. even though he's younger than her. Ah. And she sees him getting a lot of praise and attention for how skillful he is. So she's actually, you know, she can do 12 pull-ups, right? right. But the fact that like, Almost none of the adults she's around and none of the children she's around can do 12 pull-ups is completely irrelevant to her because <laughs> so we'll all be at the ninja gym and we're all having fun. Yeah. And Kira will run up to Audrey because he's excited about what he's done and say, Hey, Audrey, come watch me. She'll see him and she'll get upset internally at herself for feeling like she's not able to do what he's doing. Mm. So what we're what we've been trying to do more and more is actually just like take them separately. It's <laughs> <laughs> a brute force solution. <laughs> yeah, because just just like remove that salience, right? And kids yeah. are like that so much. Yeah. You can see that negative circle. She she becomes self-conscious of the fact that he's able to do something slightly better than her. Mm. She inhibits her performance, and right. and now she's also selecting these mm-hmm. more constrained effect. Uh, if, uh, is it effectivities? Expectancies. Expectancies. Sorry, expectancies. Okay. So her expectancies are now conditioned on him. Yeah. Right. Which is causing her to become self conscious. And yeah. yeah. This is this is another thing. I I think that I I don't think I've talked about anywhere, but I think it's really important of like. You know, if you're trying to play someone else's game, you're you're kind of always going to lose. Yeah. You know, like if she's always trying to like to to generalize, let's say, but but if you're you're always trying to select something that like to try to do something that someone else did that they're good at, you know, like. I mean, the, yes and no because yeah, it has a lot to do with expectation because my youngest, Katie is scaling up in physical skill really rapidly, right? She's about to turn five. She just did like a, she was able to do a front flip to her butt off of like a two foot platform down to an air mattress Mm -hmm. yesterday. And it's like, this is a huge, 
huge thing for her. She can do two pull-ups already. You know, she's got an eight-inch vertical loop. She's she's absurd. But she she's younger, so she doesn't have she she has no expectation of being able to do what her brother does. She only right. has the pull of seeing it. So she has the aspirational aspect without right. the negative self-consciousness aspect of it. Yeah. So you can have people who you're comparing yourself to um, who are aspirational, who pull you. Right. Um, but when you become hyper-competitive with like peer level, then that can really drag you down. Yes. And I also think like there's there's a difference between like like that pull can also be like if that pull is towards someone else's strengths and someone else's inclinations rather than your own. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do, like, I do know what you're saying. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. So I think that's what we're part of what we're struggling with with my oldest daughter is she's just not as motivated by sport as my two younger children are. Right. So she's very good. She's very athletic naturally. But it's just not as exciting for her mm. because my son is more excited than her. He does more of it and he does it at higher intensity. So if mm. we go to the if we go to the ninja gym, Kier's going to do. He's going to be playing as hard as possible with complete focus the entire time. Right. And Audrey is not going to be right. Um, and then she's upset with herself because she doesn't achieve the same things. But it's like it's not because he's. He's not necessarily more talented, just like in a physical sense. It's a, yeah. it's, it's much more about a motivational frame. Yeah. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle because you don't, I don't, it's not, I, I want her to get the skills. I want her to grow. I want her to be able to take advantage of, of being in this environment, but I also want her to like be affirmed that she doesn't have to have the same desires as everybody else. Yeah. She doesn't have to have the same drives. Mm -hmm. um, so like with Katie, she just, she does, she has that, you know, that's her, right? She, like, if we watch the Jackie Chan movie, like the, the Katie and Kira, the two younger ones, like they can't watch more than like 10 minutes of Jackie Chan without jumping up and like vaulting and flipping and jumping <laughs> and kicking all around the living room. Right. <laughs> like they have this natural inclination to want to it mimic those things right yeah yeah um, and audrey's not as much like that so yeah. um yeah it's an interesting thing i wanted to i guess we're kind of running low on time like i had a lot more uh topics i i kind of assumed that this is what's going to happen so we wouldn't make it through um most of the topics that i had because it would go in lots of other directions um but i did want to talk about volume one of the things that you yeah. have is the secret to what makes um, the sauce of movement culture and excellence is just volume. Yeah. So I think this is interesting because I I also uh, enjoy the work of uh, Philip Chubb. I'm, I'm sure you know Philip Chubb from Mindful Mover, right? Uh, yeah. So, so Philip is basically the anti-volume guy. How can I get rid of as much volume as possible? Yes. And I think there's actually really important insight in that. Like, how do we address the minimal effective dose? Um, but ultimately, I think the for skill work, yeah, there's no there's no way to get there faster without 
doing more until you're doing more to the point that your body can't handle it. Right. So tell me a little bit about your approach to volume and how you experienced it with movement culture and how you think we can intelligently approach that. And I also, maybe I also want to address just the, with the, as far as like the minimal effective dose, maybe, maybe we'll come back to it. So, uh, minimal effective dose, I think is a really, really valuable concept to think about in, in, in becoming a minimalist, um, a generalist as well. Right. But yeah. but yeah, we can come back to that. Yeah. Well, okay. But now maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> you piqued my interest. I can't stay away. So okay. th- there's something like one of the things I find, because I used to be like very into this whole like Tim Ferriss, Pareto principle, minimum effective dose, like that whole line of thought. Um in in a in a way for me, for me and both what I've seen in other people, as intelligent as it sounds. I think it, it it leads to a very stagnant mindset. If you're always looking to do less, mm-hmm. to get more out of less. Uh, yeah, I, I get it, what you're saying. It, it puts you in a different place that, because I, th- I think one of the things like, yeah. say you can do 20% of the volume and you, say you, you maintain your strength, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you can do that for a week and a month. But now what happens after six months, right? Like that was enough volume to maintain for a a short period of time, maybe over a longer time. Now you're actually starting to go backwards. And then what happens, you have an injury, you have a setback of, of whatever kind. And now you didn't have this habitual volume. Your body wasn't used to it. And now you have a big, significant drop in physical capability. And then it can become really hard to get anywhere near back where you were, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of what you get with the extra effort, the, the 80% of the effort that gets you 20% of the results mm-hmm. is growth. You know, the growth is the hardest thing to get. So there's a couple things I want to touch in there. One, I think is when I first encountered Tim Ferriss's stuff, I had the same, I had this, uh, I think a similar reaction. Yeah. And a lot of the biohacking stuff also. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, I remember when Tim tried to learn parkour in a week, he just broke himself. Right. Like, <laughs> that was just a dumb idea. He did like did the Kong and then, and then he like hurt his knee and then it was over. Right. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> no, it's bad, bad plan. I think that um, there's an advantage to patience yeah. and to the accepting of a slow process. Yes. So I think. And, and to accepting effort. Yeah. And to accepting effort. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of truth to that of like, to this idea of like, accept that some of the things that you want to do just can't be hacked. They just need, they need effort. Yeah. And I also think this comes to the 80, 20 rule, right? So um, if you want to be the best in the world at something, like on some level, you want to find all the 20% that get you the 80 and you want to, and you want to sort of like stack those as much as possible. Right. But there's this, also this element of it, which is just like, there's going to be a diminishing return on those. And at some point you just have to do a hundred percent because it's what 
it's what it is, right? So like if we go back to like the you know Vasily Lomachenko punching tennis balls, right? Yeah. I think this is less than one percent of what makes him successful. Right. right? Easily. But, but if you're Vasily Lomachenko, you know that that the next guy is also doing 99% of everything or 99.9% of everything that you could possibly do to be the best boxer in the world. So what you're looking for is actually like marginal solutions that will get you a tiny improvement. Yeah. Right. And if you want to be really, really great at something, you have to like explore the shallow end of the Pareto distribution. You just don't get there otherwise. Yes. Um, You got to squeeze everything out of the juice. The 80, 20 thing though, I think is interesting when you're a generalist. Yeah, because I'm not going to squeeze 100 out of the MMA thing. So I really, really need to be attuned to what the 20 percent is. Yeah, I'm not going to squeeze 100 out of the dance thing. I need to be attuned to what the 20 percent is. So I think it's a very useful way of framing and looking at being a generalist. One thing so, I would, and I would also say, like in Philip's defense, Philip would say, I mean, I think he's been doing this for three or four years, and he's been con- getting consistently stronger. Right. He, he says that. I, I, don't, I don't want to get into personal stuff. But. Okay. I mean, he doesn't seem weak to me. Um, he did, he definitely, he's definitely not weak. Okay. Now, yeah. but I will say this, which is I think tolerance to volume is an important adaptation to the pursuit of excellence in any physical thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. When I was, a, when I was coaching gymnastics, we used to have the team boys, their warm-up for the day was um they'd run around the gym a couple times and then they'd do over-unders on the beams, a couple, oh, like probably, I don't know, for a minute or so. Then they would climb a 20-foot rope three times. They would do a minute, uh, a minute handstand hold three times. They do three sets of 15 pull-ups, three sets of like, you know, 30 push-ups, and like three minutes of hollow body, like three one minute segments of hollow body and arch body rocks. That was not their strength training. Right. Right. That was their warm up. Right. Um, and I've always been like that. That's such an advantage going forward mm. because, because you can kind of throw anything at an athlete who, who succeeded at that and you're mm. not going to accept, exceed their capacity to adapt. Right. If that's a baseline level of effort that doesn't even fatigue you. Yeah. Then you got a you got a lot of headroom. Right. Right. You've got like in, in some sense, building your tolerance to volume just gives you it's like money in the bank that can be then be spent on skill acquisition. Yes. But oh. the flip side of that is that when you're a 12-year-old boy who's training gymnastics all the time that's a very different situation than when you're like a 35 year old who has <laughs> who has a family three kids like i've had to adopt a lot of minimalism because it's like i can't i can't you know yeah if i can get 80 percent of the benefit of my strength training by doing one set like i i can't i'm just gonna do one set because that's right. all i have time for. Right. i i feel like it's a little bit Maybe these will sound contradictory, but I think there's a there's a difference in the perspective. Like like you say, like it's so much more tempting as a generalist 
to like start looking at the where can we find this 80 20 right like we we do, we can't even get close to the 100% of one thing especially if you have a job and especially if you have a family and a job and now if we want to do all of these things like now we can't do 500% right we have to cut down somewhere yeah but uh for me, maybe this is more of like a, a life philosophy than than a training thing. But for me, I, I find a lot more value in thinking of doing what I can and knowing knowing the value of the things rather than the what can I cut away because it's too much effort, you know, and, and doesn't seem to be getting me the enough reward or enough result. Um, so, yeah. and, and I think there's something that naturally comes out of like this sort of craftsmanship's process of refinement of say you're, maybe you're training parkour five hours a day, maybe you're training one hour a day, whatever. But as you're doing that, you could be the dumbest guy, right? As you're doing that, you're going to figure things out that work better or worse, you know? And you're going to refine that process. That process is going to get better. Um, and, and a lot of those things you will figure out or very slowly or not at all if you're doing 20 minutes every fourth day because that's optimal for your tendons, you know? To like, go back to the AI kind of, computer engineering thing where you're yeah. talking about is basically like you need more iterations. You need more iteration cycles. Exactly. The more iteration cycles you put in, exactly. basically the, the faster you're going to progress, which is, I mean, like there's a level on which that's true. And then there's all, also this problem, which is that the, the body has a physiological limit. Yeah. Right. And what happens a lot. And like, I was listening to you talk about this and I'm like, Oh man, most people don't, you know, or not even near overtraining. And maybe for most like novices, that's true. But like, I've seen so many parkour athletes. Like I would say that 90% of the injuries that I see are directly caused by overtraining. Right? You tear your Achilles because you didn't rest properly. Um, you get um, elbow tendonized because you didn't rest properly. And I, I've seen over and over again, this, this, this sort of athletic trajectory of like, start training, get passionate, get really good, really, really fast, huge volumes, get an injury, regress, start putting the volume in, get an injury, regress, yeah. you know, over and over and over again. I mean, yeah. that was, that was my experience. Like I went from, you know, basically a novice of parkour at 25 to, you know, pretty high level parkour athlete at 27 and then like 28 to 30, I, uh, I had, two back spasms and neck spasm. I tore ligaments in both my feet. I subluxated my cuboid bone. I retore my rotator cuff and I tore my Achilles tendon and then I suffered a high ankle sprain. Um, <laughs> there's not a lot of progress between 27 and 30. It was pretty shit. Hmm. Then I was able to like slow myself down. I went and trained with Ido, learned a lot about like joint rehab, put my work, hmm. learned from Andrea Spina. And it was like 30 to 34 was like golden, killing it, 35. Yeah. Uh, then I had other health problems, which have kind of sustained me that those have, those don't have anything to do with overtraining. Those have everything to do with like other lifestyle factors. But um, 
But, I, you know, I think that we need to be careful in talking about the ultimate value of like those iteration cycles and being really realistic about like there's there are diminishing returns, right? You yes. only have so many cycles you can run per day and running more cycles may just result in a break that's going to that's going to cause you to not be able to run cycles for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's there's a few things here. So one it is very clear there's a dose response. Like there's a dose response or some level of diminishing returns with volume. That's very clear. Um with I've actually just been doing tons of research into um strength training, strength training volume in particular. Mm -hmm. And so how much how much do we progress with different amounts of volume? Yeah. And actually, um, is it's shocking the number of studies that haven't shown at least a statistically significant difference between, say, like one set per exercise and like three. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're doing them, you know, say three times a week. Sure. So, you know, that's there. Like the one set per exercise at a at a at a quality intensity is a very powerful thing, mm -hmm. you know, potentially, potentially. Yeah. If you had that 80, 20 mindset, you could start with that. Like even one set could be very beneficial. I've had some really good progress doing workouts entirely composed of one set. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, it can be quite good. And so there's, that's mostly in untrained people. And then, so you can speculate that in trained populations, you need more volume. It's not super clear um, to what extent that is or, or where that is. I'm still reading. I've been digging. My backpack is like, I should show you. It's literally, <laughs> it's like, there's like literally like half of them. <laughs> so, you know, I'll keep reading more and, and, Maybe my perspective will change as I read more and more of these studies, but um, it also doesn't seem to be clear that there's an upper limit for where you get, where you don't get any further progress. Um, and so, <sighs> I think that I think that really depends on modality. Like, so I was I was looking at. Um, uh, there was a paper that came out about the the health impacts of walking. Yes. Right. And this found this extremely sharp slope of health increases from, you know, zero steps to 8,000 steps per day. And yes. then like, you know, 8,000 to like 12,000, the slope is a little bit shallower, but still good. Right. And then it gets even shallower but like it goes all the way out to 24,000 steps per day and the slope is always upward. There's no inflection point where you're actually walking too much. Right. But if you look at elite sprint coaches, like they will often tell you, you just cannot put hundred percent effort out in a sprint within 72 hours of a previous all out sprint. Mm. But like, Mat the maximal value of like 100% sprinting that you can do per week is three sessions. Yeah, but you, then you also have you also have high level like um, 
Uh, who's the guy from the uh, volume video second? Uh, like guys like John Bruce, right? Olympic weightlifting is, I would say, just as power dependent as sprinting. Um, and he is telling them every day, twice a day, right? You have the Bulgarian, the whole Bulgarian method, like. Yeah, I, I think that one is definitely um, PEDs. I don't think you can sustain that with that. So, so this is this is a funny thing that when I posted that video, uh, <laughs> I, I thought there was going to be some like significant pushback there, and no one really picked up on that. But but yes, like that is one of the potential like complications of like, okay, well, he did have an enormous amount of success. The Bulgarian method, Ivan Nabogiev, uh, John Bruce, and and you know that whole system of things, but they also had a ton of like steroid allegations, you know. So it's yeah. I mean, we know that everyone in elite sport is essentially on PEDs, or at least at least the majority, in my opinion. I, I'm. I think there's there's a number I was seeing around like thirty percent, but. It's it's certainly significant. It's significant. Yeah. I would suspect it's more like eighty percent. I think you're yeah. The, if you're not in any kind of PEDs, yeah, I'm more optimistic. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I think there's some of these programs that we have to like, you know, consider whether they're 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 only possible with with PEDs. It's true. Yeah, it's true. I was li- uh, I was reading this really beautiful article about speed skating, and he was talking about mm-hmm. like. Uh, in his perspective, you just basically can't overdose the aerobic system. So, like, in his off-season, the speed skater would train, like, five or six hours of aerobic work. Yeah. But my experience, what I've read, like, the when you're, when you're accessing higher threshold motor units, when you're sprinting, when you're doing these things, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different game. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and that, that's that's what you know. Like I, I worked with Mike Cunliffe uh, for sprinting. Mike's daughter Hannah was seven-time national champion in her age class. Um, you know, we had Tatum uh, Tatum Taylor, I think, on our team that year, who was the third fastest sixteen-year-old in the country. Wow. Um, Ten thirty-two. Oh shit! Hundred meter time. Yeah. Jesus. Ten thirty-two at sixteen. Uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, twenty-seven foot long jumper. So it was good. You know, it was a solid team, right? Yeah. And he said, basically, if you're training under 70% of your maximal capacity, um, you're not exhausting your nervous system. You can essentially train every day. Right. And some of these weightlifting programs are like that. They're not actually lifting uh, maximal loads. Right. Right. So it's like they're going in and they're just getting volume of, of that. Right. Um, I think there are some successful sprint coaches who do more of a technical approach where they're getting a lot of volume at submaximal or like, I think Derek Hansen's been talking about like just doing a ton of, of like relatively low volume sessions of like 10, 10 meter accelerations. Um, yeah. but yeah, my, the, the kind of most of the successful coaches that I know of or that I've been around or talked to in the sprint world. Or like volume is very dangerous for sprinters. It's very yeah. easy. So 
uh, sprinters on volume. And also people who are great at sprinting don't tolerate volume, volume well. People who are naturally good at sprinting uh, have a very easy time accessing higher threshold motor units and become right. exhausted very easily. Yeah, that would, that would certainly make sense. I was talking to a, a coach who was saying that like, uh, so I, I did a bunch of CrossFit right before all those injuries that I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to this uh, this guy who used to be big in the CrossFit community and I was working with a lot of ex-CrossFitters um, and he was saying that like, he just calls it like post-CrossFit and meltdown syndrome. Um, where you just see people who like, they they just like all their, all their soft tissue just starts breaking, you know, mm. a few years into CrossFit. And he said that his observation was that uh, naturally aerobic dominant athletes can, can, can tolerate CrossFit and can train just buttloads of volume and they're fine, right? You just basically right. can't overtrain them. But highly phosphagen dominant athletes are relatively easy to overtrain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So these are like Charlie Francis said that, you know, uh, Ben Johnson would run away. Like he would hide in the bathroom when they did, uh, longer (laughs) distances. If you had to run a mile, Ben would. (laughs) And eventually he learned like, Oh, if I'm working with athletes like Ben, I'm just not going to use those type of uh, interventions. Yeah. 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 So, so the, the complexity arises, um with the euro studies that i mentioned um i think very briefly at the end of one of those edo videos um so basically so this this video i posted of the the most important thing i learned from edo portal being like volume yeah. that like if you want to make more progress you do more volume and so i actually held off on doing that vi- i had that idea for like i don't know 6 8 months and I held off on it for a long time because I was like, I don't want to be pushing this if there's research to the contrary. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, like Ida's saying this, it makes sense. It's worked for me. I see it working for a lot of people. Um, however, I don't, I don't know what the science says. So I want to, I want to figure that out first. And so when I went to actually dig into it, um, I kind of did a review paper on overtraining and it's very interesting, the research. So first of all, like it's very hard to define like what overtraining is. So there's like a few different definitions. So there's like, um, there's functional overreaching Mm -hmm. and there's non-functional overreaching and then there's overtraining syndrome. Like, so, so these are like, this is kind of like the more classic categories, right? And so some of the early ones are easy to define. So functional overtra- overreaching being like, you kind of, so basically any of these, you're kind of seeing a, a uh, increase in fatigue, a decrease in motivation, and, it, and, and most critically, you're seeing a decrease in performance with significant amounts of training volume. Yeah. This was so, yesterday. Huh? This is me yesterday. I guess what? Six sessions in eight days, right? Yes. So session one was great. I hadn't trained in 14 days because I got sick. Right. Right. Such a good session. Session two, 
kind of fatigued when I arrived, wasn't as excited, but once I warmed up, awesome session. Session three, these are all parkour sessions. Yeah. Third session, same story as the second session. Progress. Finally get the skill that I've been working on for the last six months, right? Nice. Or uh, last three months. So then I was kind of fatigued feeling, but my HRVs looked good. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go in and do a strength training workout Monday. Um, yeah. And it was good. I, I, I was stronger. And then I went in and did my cardio workout the next day, mobility workout. And my cardio was like not stronger. Yeah. And then yesterday, my HRVs were still really good, which was weird because they always go down when I train. And I was like, well, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to go into the gym. And uh, so I went to the gym and I was just super unmotivated, didn't feel good, uh, wasn't excited to play, did some things. was like, I'm going to work on the skill. I'm going to work on the skill. So I worked on the main skill and I was excited because I was pleased because I was much less weak than I expected to be. <laughs> yeah. So I, I still regressed relative to, um, to, to, uh, to Sunday. Right. But. Like my my floor for my performance had risen relative to like a few weeks ago, but then I did a climb up and I felt pain in my 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 forearm, and like a forearm splint, and I was like, oh, yeah, not gonna not gonna play with pain. Yeah, yeah. So that's my personal <laughs> experience. Of like, okay, I overreached slightly. Yeah. So functional overreaching is like pretty easy to define, pretty easy to see in the research, right? So you you have people kind of train too much, their performance decreases, you back off the volume and you see their performance kind of rebound. Uh, and and you, would, you would generally say it would like super compensate. It would rebound more than it would have had you not done the extra training. Then there's the idea of non-functional overreaching, which is at some unspecified amount more volume or some unspecified more time or more fatigue or whatever that it's more of this idea that this overtraining becomes no longer functional like it's no longer helpful if you back off the volume you're not getting super compensation on the back side of the overtraining yeah yeah um or or you're certainly at least not getting any more super compensation right it's just any more that you that you let this go on, it's not helping you. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third kind of category being overtraining syndrome. And again, like it's somewhere like in an unspecified amount more. And it's like not clear what the difference is between overtraining syndrome and non-functional overreaching. Um, but it's basically like it's somewhere more severe That's where true. potentially where you back off the training and now like this this fatigue and this decreased motivation, this burnout, decreased performance, like may take months, if not like years to like come back. I've been there too. <laughs> so, and so it's very hard, it's very hard to define it. And And one of the problems with things like this is like, it's not ethical to like do this to people. Right. You can't get a study and say, all right, let's let's get everyone over training syndrome and then no let's see how long it takes. Right. So no one does it. And and hence it's it's not well understood. Um but so there was a study 
that was or kind of a series of studies that was, was very interesting. And it, to me, it was by far the best study that had been done on what seemed to be overtraining syndrome. Like <laughs> it was basically they got, they recruited like 40 um, high level athletes that had uh, overtraining syndrome, they called it. And they verified it in a few different ways. They had to like interview their coach and the coach had to say that the coach had to like, kind of like back everything up and suggest that they had, you know, some, some level of overtraining. Uh, and then they also did this thing I thought was funny. They, they weeded out, they called them, they actually called them in the paper, like false athletes, which they defined as people, I think training like less than three times a week for like 90 minutes a session, something like that. So they had to be training like a significant amount. Uh, I think I think they were training more than two hours a day for this study. Um, and so then what they did is they they did this assortment of like almost all the tests you could imagine, like all of these different blood tests, like blood tests. They looked at uh, I think they might have looked at urine. They looked at sleep quality. They looked at food. They looked at, you know, uh, was it? Uh, they basically looked at mood. And so they tried to say uh, training intensity, training volume. And so it's all correlational, right? It's all after the fact. But then they tried to say, okay, um, how do we figure out who had overtraining syndrome, mm-hmm. right? We have these these people with overtraining, and at least like as as validated as we can be that it's overtraining. But that's what we've got, and we've got also these kind of like healthy controls and athlete controls. And so what they found was that there was no correlation between training volume or intensity with the people that had overtraining. You know, and so so this is what I found that that just to me was certainly enough validation to say, okay, like there at at the very least is not evidence to say that Ito is wrong. You know? I mean, yeah. I mean, the thought that occurs to me right away there is like the threshold for overtraining would naturally be very individual because it's going to be based on training history and, uh, and the specific. But you would assume there'd be some correlation, even if it's individual. Not not necessarily. It's it wouldn't necessarily show up statistically in that kind of study because if you just think about the variation in like natural variation in, in movement tolerance could be very wide, and then you think about the variation in training history and how much someone can uh, how much volume someone is used to. So if you think of it as a as a as a change in volume, it, like think about injury, right? Injury is just load that exceeds the capacity of the tissue to do it, right? You think of overturning. That's, that's, oh, that's already very mechanical model of injury. I mean, the the like when you're talking about a mechanical injury, right? Like yeah, we we're talking the about earlier of the Achilles tendon you, you, tears apart, okay. right? Okay. Bio, so, uh, it's already so, a small subset of injuries. <laughs> true. Fair enough. But my my point is that you could you could model at least part of this as the athlete has exceeded their capacity to adapt to an increase in volume. The threshold 
at which you've exceeded that capacity and how deep you've gone into the ex, uh, uh, how far you've exceeded that capacity seems to me like it would be highly variable from athlete to athlete. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily get a clear signal of you do a thousand hour, you know, if you, everyone goes into overtraining if they do, you know, 40 hours of training a week. Like I, I wouldn't expect that type of result at all. So a lot of times, you know, it, with science, it's like it, it, the the value of the the evidence is really dependent on how you frame the questions. And a lot yeah. of times, interindividual variability muddies the water to the point where it's very very difficult to get uh, a clear answer, especially totally. if you're questioning incorrectly. Totally, totally, totally. Still, I I would I would assume that you would see some correlation. Say, this is an interesting idea that you're raising. But but the way I'm understanding it is like imagine that there's a, a completely random threshold for people, like a certain training volume. Let's say all the hours of training are intense. And there's a certain training volume for each person that would cause overtraining. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 maybe that's a number between say zero and 40 hours per week. It's completely random and everyone like the standard deviation is enormous. It's random. It's just impacted by a large amount of variables. It's going to be impacted by, sure. by the sure. athletes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Training background, their metabolic system, and by their life circumstances. Sure. Right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. my my capacity to absorb new training volume when I'm 25 years old and don't have children and I'm not running my own business is going to be very different than, you know, 35 working eight hours a week, three children under five years old. Right. Yes. So like, but the point is that, that it's going to be very, very hard to control for all of those factors in a study. Like, and this is where the biopsychosocial model comes in, right? Like, you know, literally like, okay. So one athlete breaks up with their girlfriend during the study. Yeah. It's like that's doesn't have anything to do with their training volume, right? Right. Well, so so this but was it impacts the yeah. system's ability to adapt. Yeah. So they didn't find any correlation between overtraining and training volume or intensity. Yeah. But they did see correlation between a number of factors. Um. So, but but also so whether we imagine that a number of variables contribute to overtraining or if it's totally random, you would still see you would still see some correlation between you should still see that again. Like you're saying, I think, I think it's going to depend on the statistical power of the study. Yes. Yes. It might. So it might not be powered enough yeah. in a sample of 40 people. That's totally fair. Yeah. Um, but so what they did see correlation with that, that you were kind of touching on, they saw correlation between overtraining incidents of overtraining and, and five factors. Yeah. So they saw self-reported sleep quality, concurrent hours of like cognitively stressful activity. So like basically like work, um, self-reported sleep quality, uh, concurrent stressful hours, total calorie intake, total carb intake and total protein intake. Leave those at the five. Um, I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they did see, they did see these correlations. It, It wasn't that, that, um, they didn't see any correlation between anything in overtraining and it was totally random. But th- those are all factors that have more to do with recovery than, 
you know, how much they were training. And so that's why they, they, they re-termed overtraining, they recoined it as paradoxical deconditioning syndrome. Since they didn't see any correlation with how much you're actually training, you're calling something overtraining. It should happen if you train too much and not happen if you train too little. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather it was, it seemed to me more about your recovery factors. Are you sleeping well? Are you, are you getting enough total calories? Are you getting enough protein? Are you getting enough carbs? And are you just cognitively stressed? Right. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, and, and again, like you're saying, maybe they're not statistically powered enough to, to see. I just, I think that like, what that points to to me is, I mean, over you could say okay, it's it's not overtraining, it's under recovery. But they're just two yeah. sides of the same coin, right? Overtraining is overtraining relative to the capacity for recovery. We can only expand our capacity for recovery to a limited degree, anyways, right? So it's like, yeah, you can you can get your sleep right, you can get your relationship right, but there's there's there is there's going to be a point at which the capacity of the system is exceeded. Now, what it, what it sounds like to me is that the, my conclusion from that study would be that the primary factor that were found in inducing overtraining were those factors that dec- that that injured recovery. But the recovery is injured in relationship to the training stress. So would those athletes have become overtrained if they weren't training? So, yeah, this is the thing that, so, so again, like they're two sides of the same coin, but they're not. So, so first, like with the studies in particular, so again, it's, it's post facts, right? They're, they're, they're not inducing overtraining in anyone. They're just, they're taking the people that say they're overtrained and then they're, they do all the tests and then they, they, they do all the calculations after the fact. So it's also not the best way, you know, what well, I yeah. really like them to do is, now you take a new group of overtrained people and you apply your statistics. And then you see, can you? I'm surprised they, they that haven't you. done this on people in like, or if they haven't, I'd be very curious if people have done it on boot camp or skills yeah. training, right? Yeah. I think this is like a, that would be great. A clear, yeah. Clear instance of something that's going to likely to to cause an overtraining effect. Yes. And you can kind of study, you know, how that that happens basically. Yeah. You would think that'd be easy to get approval, but maybe like the military. I mean, the military <laughs> they like data, right? Um, <laughs> my kids are about to be home in like five minutes. Um, yeah. We're going to make this uh, a hectic environment here. Um, <laughs> so really quickly, like one of the thing, this has been like, I, you know, I met Ido in 2011 and I trained with him in yeah. 2012. Um, and like, I've thought about becoming one of his, uh, his online students, but I knew that my capacity for recovery wasn't up to what he wanted for me. So I was like trying to train myself up to recovering sufficiently to train with Ido. And then hmm. eventually I was just doing my own stuff and I lost interest. Right. It, right. it wasn't, it wasn't a path. Um, but the, but then I worked with all these students of Ido's. And like, obviously I have a super biased sample, but like basically the people who came to me were the people who broke under the volume. Right. Um, so what I've always thought is like, okay, well, volume, volume is, 
is a training stimulus. And like any training stimulus, it needs progressive overload, right? Like to me, starting someone on a 40 hour a week movement program is like trying to have someone back squat 300 pounds the first time they back squat. It's like, Mm. it's quite possibly going to exceed their capacity for load and cause them an injury. Yeah. So I'm curious how you have approached uh, building people's volume up. So the way that I look at it is basically like, you know, just progressive overload. Yeah. Plus addressing those recovery aspects, right? So if I want an athlete to, to handle more volume over time, I need them to improve their sleep. I need them to improve their nutrition. I need to improve their relationship and work status. And I actually believe strongly in uh, cultivation of the aerobic system as essentially expanding the capacity for recovery. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I'm curious if you have any other refinements on on that kind of uh, perspective. I think I do about the same. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I think we're on. So I think you said that your students usually train with you for seven weeks, uh, seven days a week, seven hours a week. It it totally depends. But that's the kind of like the max that someone's coming to work with you to start with. Again, totally depends. Totally depends. Okay. Yeah. Because that would be like, if you never see anyone dealing with overtraining in seven hours, then you're like, well, at least I have this baseline. Right? That's a a volume that I can get people into. Yeah. And they're going to go for it, right? Like when I had parkour students who were training 90 minutes with me three days a week, never had an overtraining issue with any of right. right. I feel pretty safe starting at that level of volume with any incoming student. Yeah. But I wouldn't feel safe starting most students at 20 hours a week. Yeah. I mean, you know, it depends a lot, right? Like, and well, I guess maybe this is a difference for me. I, I don't really think about it so much from a physiological perspective, mm-hmm. actually. For me, for me, it's, it's, it's all about the psychological perspective yeah. of what can you maintain at, at a, what can you maintain motivation for, you know? And, and so all the factors, the, the sleep, the diet, the, you know, <laughs> help people, all that, right? Those are things that like, they're going to be helpful, you know, yeah. they're going to, they're going to help you tolerate more volume. They're going to help you adapt better to the volume you have. Like it's, it's just good, you know? Um, I think my bias so is physiological because that's my uh those are my limiting factors like motivation has never been a problem for me in relationship to my practices yeah yeah as soon as i (laughs) feel good enough i'm incredibly hungry for my practice right 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 aspects have been hard yeah um yeah so like lots of people struggle with motivation yeah yeah i to some extent i think everyone does Cause there's also, there's always like, there's easy things to do. And especially with the movement practice, there's so much variety. It's not like you have to like, it, it, we're not doing like Bulgarian style Olympic weightlifting every day, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you maybe do your Olympic weightlifting twice a week. You'd be training four times a day and you just only do Olympic weightlifting twice a week. Like it's right. Like, you're doing all this work you're doing all this balance work the handstands like when you adapt when your wrists adapt to the volume like the the muscular demand of a handstand is is actually quite minimal you know you do tons of 
that time every day like uh dance like there's there's ways to dance that are very demanding there are ways Parkour to dance really demanding that's my yeah. so like the Parkour, exactly hardcore is yeah. extremely high load yes yes yeah. Um, um, <laughs> yeah so maybe that's more of a factor for you but even like parkour right there's there's ways you can do yeah i mean you can balance <laughs> on there. Yeah. Yeah, i was gonna say i was like the, the rail work is you know you could do that all day <laughs> um, slack line slack line you could do that yeah yeah I, uh, I, yeah i've been slack lining uh at the at the ninja gym yeah this is a really fun conversation Brent. yeah Time flew by. We went up 45 minutes over the, the scheduled time. Um, that okay. didn't surprise me. I expected that uh, that you and I would get along like firecrackers talking about this. Stuff. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll we'll do it again. Um, the movementcult.com is where people can find you. Just Bren Vizirolu. <laughs> actually, yeah. Vizirolu. Yeah. Vizirolu. I'm impressed, actually. GLU at the end. Um, for anyone who wants to find you on Facebook, we'll add it or on uh, you're on YouTube and Instagram. YouTube, Instagram. Uh, I have a TikTok now too. I just haven't uh, haven't told anyone about it. We, so, can't, uh, we can't promote TikTok on this channel. <laughs> We're not supporters of the CCP. So <laughs> we'll <delete> that. Uh, <laughs> so, anyways, people know where to find you, um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, to future chats. Sounds great, Ray. Great talking to you.